Warning. The following contains bright, flashing lights, and slash or imager that may cause discomfort, and slash or seizures for those with photosensitive epilepsy. Viewer discretion is advised. Three years ago. Is that kind of like the time frame that we're talking about? Yeah, almost exactly. Uh, I found myself in Rochester. Um, you've been, you, you and me have been talking for a while online. Um, we were trying to figure out places where we can bring our course offerings. Um, for people that don't know, I'm an instructor, and I teach a few weird subject matters, among them um, how to basically weaponize things that are not normally used as weapons, but basically how to create for yourselves the ability to defend yourself and maybe somebody else in a, in a bad situation. Asking somebody to lend us their gym so we can hang a pig carcass is, is always a, uh, that's usually where, where the conversations conclude with people. You want to do what at the gym? You know? Uh, when I had that conversation with you, we were like, how many pigs do you want and you know, where do you want to hang them, basically? Um, we basically met that day, uh, th those two, that weekend we met. We hadn't met in person. Um, one of the things I noticed first was the quality of the people around you, which is something I always look for when I you know, meet people uh, that have a community like yourself. You know? At the end of the class, which you participated with, uh, with the curiosity, joy, and no ego, which I, you can't, I can't tell you enough how I appreciate that about people. Uh, it's a rare thing. You ask questions. You ask fascinating questions about some of these things. Um, you gave me a moment of your time. Um, I couldn't bend forward and touch my knees, which is, you know, I, I'm pretty good at faking that I'm okay, you know? I've, I've spent years basically faking it. Me too. You saw right through my bullshit. That's how. <laughs> because basically you, you learned about how to kind of see through, through other people's BS when it came to that. I was basically holding something in the, my midsection, past injuries, horrible life choices, working in an environment that was pretty... Uh, it didn't forgive a lot. You saw that in me, and uh, other people would take the approach of, hey, dude, you should do this. You should stretch, uh, take care of yourself more, like, do this, do that. You did an honest, cold assessment of my injuries and also about my hesitant nature of trying to like, pursue mobility. And uh, you gave me a cross that day. So I like call it my cross, even though it's not a crucifix per se, but you gave me this, this object that I've just put in the center of the table. It's a pretty good symbol. Um, I flew across the country with this object, which was probably one of the most uh, awkward things I've ever had to travel with. People were trying to see if it's a bong, right, right, a bomb, right. or like, what is this object that you're carrying with you? You know, it was pretty well wrapped. Uh, somehow I made it back to where I had to be for a while. And I started swinging it. Every morning I would wake up and swing it. Um, some of your artists basically did me a beautiful gift of uh, putting this on there, which is a symbol for me. 
It's death holding a bottle. I was at the beginning of my sobriety when I met you, and I was like getting rid of a lot of shit for myself and kind of building my body up again. Um, two years, almost three years later, you're here, and you witness my ability to move my legs under me and to just move freely with my legs and my abdomen. I saw that moment of like, holy shit. <laughs> we got a cool midpoint assessment too. Yeah. You, you came back for the next course. I did. I did. And it was easy to see that you were not where you were. Yeah, inflammation. And, and for us, I mean, that's huge. And we, we, we usually get um, access to someone much more frequently than that. So we get to see these real-time changes. Yeah. But I, I, I have a, I'm a traveling hobo, and I, I need to do a better job about taking care of myself. I'm still working on it. I went through a lot of internal work for about two years, and I'm, uh, I'm at a point where in my life I was like, hmm, I wonder what's next. And uh, I was uh, praying for direction. And then uh, my business manager calls me and says, hey, remember that thing we wanted to plan, this, this filming of this, uh, this program to put people on the path like you are? Yeah, well, that's happening next month. Are you ready? He's like, oh, fuck, of course. You know, be careful what you pray for, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then you showed up. You showed up. <laughs> and that's, we, that's what we've been doing the past four days. Yeah. It's working on this project, which is an attempt to share to, to, to an audience some of the processes that I've been going through and some of the, the work that you've been doing for hundreds, if not thousands of people, as far as building people back up physically, just like you did for yourself. Yeah. Um, before we go into all of that, origin stories. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> origin right. stories. We were, we were uh, me and Avi, um, the guy that produces the podcast, we were like the, researching you and stalking you online last Jeez, night. That's, you fun know? To, that's fun to think about. It's fine, though. <laughs> it's fine. Um, we saw a video of you, uh, a young Greg, uh, while you are doing the VMX design thing. And this, this guy, is, he's the same dude. <laughs> he's the same guy. Where, 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 were you, where were you? Where were you born? Where, where, where did you come up? Uh, um, yeah. Born in Syracuse, lived in Rochester, New York, until I was. Uh, I got an opportunity to move to California and, and work in the BMX industry in a bigger way than I was in in New York in 1999. That's that's wild. That, that's a wild change. It, it was wild. Did, was you say you 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 had to leave Rochester though? Yeah. Yeah. What was like growing up in Rochester? What was that like? Like, and for like for people that don't don't know what Rochester, can you describe? Rochester. Can you describe your the, the the this 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 environment that kind of formed your formative years there? Yeah, and, and I've never painted myself as a city kid when I was single digits. You know, we grew up in a, in a suburb outside of Rochester, and the suburbs are often just as weird as the cities. And I I, I found out about. BMX and hardcore almost at the same moment at, at 11 years old just threw a magazines in the grocery store. What, 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 uh, what band? What hardcore you're talking so like, about? So like the first stuff I saw was in the, in the BMX and skate magazines at the time SST Records would have ads. You know, so even though it didn't end up being my favorite stuff, it was, it was, it was Black an Flag and, and all these other bands that were kind of punk and, and hardcore crossovers, Suicidal Tendencies. That was um, the door. The, the Accused. These bands that Suicidal Tendencies is still one of my favorite bands, but some of the other stuff, it was just a perfect gateway drug. Yeah. I'm, I'll probably use that phrase way too much today, but <laughs> when, when I first saw BMX, I was curious about it immediately because it looked risky, but it looked, it looked athletic. 
And yeah. at the time, I was just I was just an athletic kid. I played lacrosse and ran around and caused trouble and tortured, energy tortured the neighbors and just wanted to do something more solo. <laughs> energy, um, energy, yeah. yeah. Energy. Where'd you where, where'd you get that? Like if you if you can point to one of your parents, yeah. Who's that from? I, I think it's from my neighbors. Your neighbors gave yeah, you like that. Our, our neighbors as kids. I have a I have a younger brother, four years younger than me, and um, our neighborhood was we were like kind of in the country, like not not big fancy country with animals and all this kind of stuff, but just outside the suburb, and so the opportunities for mischief making were endless. What 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 what, what were you and getting into? <laughs> so our our next door neighbors were were these just troublemaking kids, three three different ages, and. I mean, we would do, we would do everything from hunt the hunters. You know, there was there was there was hunters that would get way too close to the residential houses, and and we would hide in the gullies in the road and plug their trucks and their asses with BB guns. This is, <laughs> and then run off. You know, and and you know there was a, there was a real mean kid that lived way down at the end of the street, and um, we had an opportunity to build a snow fort, and we kind of baited the hook with we stole some adult magazines from his basement put them in the fort. And then once we tricked him into the fort, you know, we collapsed the fort. <laughs> um, this is way too early for me to be divulging this It was great. But we had, we had also had this really kind of code, code of ethics. You know, you don't, you don't tattletale on the neighbors. They're, yeah, doing, you don't they're doing what they're doing. So our other neighbors, delightful little kids. But anytime we do anything weird, They'd tell on us. They'd they'd be they'd be knocking at the front door and and you know whatever. So, <laughs> the next door neighbors also had one cow, in this tiny pen, real strange situation, but it means they had bales of hay every place. Yeah. And um, my first job when I was 15 was was baling hay at the farm at the end of the at the end of the road. How so old were you? F 15 when I started doing that. Um, man, you, you know later much later on in life. Holy cow! Do you understand the term farm strength when you've ever done any of that ever? Yeah, yeah. Um, I remember even at 15, you know, healthy, normal kid, you just you're done. You come home, you feel like you've been in a washing machine for three days. Um, but the, neighbor, the neighbors would tattletale on us all the time, and so we we built this kind of fort with the hay bales. Yeah, and we'd went and we'd collected a bunch of dead things from around the yard and from the road and and whatever, and put them under some some hay in this fort and then you know tricked them into the fort and then pushed the hay bales in front of the fort and then drove a little tractor in front of the hay bales and then climbed out and, and <laughs> le left these two otherwise delightful kids trapped in this in this fort with these you know soon to be discovered dead things underground <laughs> and for us we were just like you know there's there's this kind of loyalty that we that we had and and it, it It, it was it was your it was your first taste of retribution in a lot of ways. They snitched. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and I mean it, it it was it was also strange. Like it wasn't it wasn't mean spirited. No, I, I get it. I get it. Your um, kids, and when you're when you're at that age, you have an, a like a giant sense of anything that's basic now in our lives, or we realize that back then back then we don't have a filter for shit. So if we talk about justice, it's like all-encompassing, exaggerated justice it has yeah. to be this way. And, and for me, I, 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 don't, I, I, don't, I don't know. Honestly, I couldn't quantify it. I'd be making it up. But I, I had this weird sense that sometimes that was just going to be something that I did. You know, uh, um, uh, uh, one particular guy on that street had accidentally shot a neighbor's dog thinking that it was a deer or something. And um, 
that's that's the first time I ever found out that a screwdriver would poke holes in a car tire. And and that you you were vengeance. You know, I was I was just looking at I was just looking at that, and I was like, you know, I, I could even then. I mean, I couldn't understand it. I wasn't some Puritan, but I, I didn't. Where, where, where did that come from? If, if you like this this, uh, and I understand it, the sense of justice that some of us get because, and usually for me, I got my sense of justice because of unfairness that I grew up with. I grew up with a lot of unfair things, things that I saw that I didn't deserve. So I, I had I, I developed this exaggerated sense of justice, you know, of seeing, you know, some of the horrible childhood that my mother grew up in, or loss, or experiencing the horrible things that I I don't deserve this. Let me try and keep other people's people from this pain that I'm getting. So I would exaggerate my sense of justice uh, when I was a kid. I mean, once once I'd once I'd hit that that point where I learned about BMX and hardcore and things like that, you know, thematically, punk rock and hardcore music that that's a, that's a recurring theme. Yeah. P- prior to that, I, I've I've thought about this quite a bit though. My 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 mom is a devout born again Christian. I uh, I never liked how I was treated by the people that she was closest to. Um, even before I started being a weird kid. Yeah. It, it just it just. It, it always had a, f- a falseness to it for the, me. The, uh, the, when you say you, how you were treated, you were, uh, I mean, you were weird, as you say. Yeah. Uh, but. And I hadn't even he- yet hit really the weird stride. Like, yeah. even prior to that, I just, I, just didn't, I just didn't like how it felt. What, what was the, when you say, you say pure, like, Christian, was that something they was trying to, did they try to impose that on you? Yeah, sure, of course. I mean, they. You know, and, and what and what what about what about that imposition made it an imposition for you? Like, why didn't you? What did you? What did what did you not like about it that well, made <laughs> you rebel? Because that's I got some of that too. You know, I was I was I went to Catholic school. Yeah, and that made yeah. me. Yeah, that that was enough for me. Well, <laughs> and and for me, I suppose it would be it would be youth group. I went to norm I went to normal school, um, you know, and and even even in even in younger normal school. Uh, one of the one of the first times I got in in real trouble in in normal school was was kindergarten and and there was this rich kid that had this Paddington bear, you know. At the time, it was like this cool toy, and he treated this thing like garbage. He'd put it in his bag upside down and leave it on the ground or whatever. So I stole it. Yeah. And of course, because I'm a tiny idiot, I I got caught stealing it, and I got in a ton of trouble. And then so then you know then then you get then you get the the, the parental scolding, you get the, the school scolding, but the parental scolding was based in, um, you know, Christian values. Do not steal. That's an interesting origin point for you, in a way. So you saw somebody discarding something that wasn't valuable to them, and you <laughs> gave it your own value, and you said, well, if this is going to be something they don't value and discard, you didn't steal it. You basically said, well, you, you picked it up. Well, and it's funny because later on we've we've taken other things that are strange and we refer to it as liberating them. Yeah, but but I mean honestly, that's just a way to cover it up. We stole it. You know? I mean, I mean, thievery is you know people talk about it as as a, as a uh, a sin. You know, stealing or I think there's you know stealing bread for yourself if you're hungry. You know, there's a, there's there's a line there somewhere. I've always thought this about children, specifically with mine. Children are close to source, closer than we are. They're honest. If you want to see true honesty of the world, you see children. That's why you can see a baby gazelle playing with a baby leopard. 
sometimes in videos and like, what the hell's going on there? Well, yeah. they're at a point where that they're not hungry for each other yet. Yeah. They're not running from each other yet. They're, they're close to source. Hmm. That's usually where you see the honesty. And I think you had a moment of honesty and you were punished <laughs> for that. Punished in, in a couple of different ways, institutionally. And then also, I guess, you know, philosophically or religiously or whatever. And, and it's, it's not like I was taking some political stand, stealing is right. But you were. In a, well, I, I guess now that we can look back on it, if you see it, you, you liberated something from somebody that didn't, didn't want it. And in a big way, you were punished for just an honest expression when a kid basically picking up something that's discarded. And I could imagine at that age, I mean, that's... You're confused. You're confused immediately. And, and it, it causes a dissonance that makes you kind of want to reject feeling that confusion again. Yeah. So then you go to youth group and you go to this other stuff and, and you see that, you know, the shiny, happy faces. And, and it's not like I was some deviant maniac, but you, I... You I, saw through it. I just, I, I just couldn't buy in. You saw through it. And then so I think when I, when I learned of these kind of countercultures, it, it just, it, it felt like other immediately. Pe other people have the glasses that I have on. That, that's it. it. Right? That's it. Look yeah. at what they're wearing. Look at how they're looking. Look at the faces they're making in these photos. Yeah. yeah. You know? I, I heard somewhere, like, uh, basically the glasses. You, you saw, you basically at that age, you saw the injustice and also the imposition aspect of it. So you basically put on the glasses that some of us put on. The reality glasses. It's the it's the they live glasses. Yeah. You know the first the first time I saw that movie, I remember being like, uh, you know, I always I trail it all back to this this visit. You know, this weird visit to the grocery store. You pick up a magazine, and all of a sudden, your whole life is shifted in like fifteen minutes. <laughs> and and you know what a what a what a blessing and curse that was. Well, you know, it, it, well, the curse the the it, the blessing of it is one you can see now, and it's not it's that's not that's not an ego thing it's not like you know the truth and other people don't is you can see the basics of how things are and how people lie and or fool themselves oh it, it it created an eternal seeking of the truth yeah it, it was it was we, we talk about it in 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 a lot of what i write is the eternal comma yeah um you know the true seekers are always looking for the eternal comma there's yeah. never a period yeah. at the end of the sentence yeah you know and, and that's what that's what something like for, for me at the time especially with how unconventional action sports were bmx was at the time um, it, it's an interesting, it's an interesting dichotomy. Now it's it's on TV, it's in the Olympics. People see people riding BMX in the cities, and they'll watch and things like that. Yeah. I mean, you know, it, it, back then it's it was crime. you. I mean, it, it, I'd, crime. I'd, I'd run from more cops on a bike at 15 or 16 years old, um, and and it, it's just, it, but it felt right. Yeah, the, the curse, the curse aspect of those glasses is that once they're on, you can't take them off. You can't take them off. So it's no. like we, uh, talked, we talked about this. Yeah. It's, it's, not, it's a wishing for ignorance. We can take them off, but we would have to basically suffer from brain injury to do that. You know, yeah. there's, and there's, yeah. you know, yeah. that, that's probably not, 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 not the best allusion to that. So you, you discover this, this outlet for yourself, music, um, people screaming for justice in some of these songs. I had this moment too. I remember sitting down and listening to the Misfits for the first time and just listening to these dark lyrics of, I mean, just mania, why, why are these people singing about this? And then relishing in some of that darkness because, oh, you can celebrate the dark too, not just the light. 
which you know if you grew up Catholic and if you grew up um, in a religious family like I did, you you would be you know bad is bad, good always triumphs. You know this whole un unbalanced kind of notion of the world where yeah God is great, there's nobody greater than Him, the devil never wins, he's always going to win in the end. But you see reality, and that's not what you see. You see the devil winning a lot of places, or you see the darkness actually reigning in some parts of the world or parts of reality. Well, my, my perception of that was also strange because, you know, I, I've always just referred to it as kicked out of everywhere. But I mean, when I found BMX and, and hardcore, I was, I was playing lacrosse. I was good at it. Um, I'd gotten to go to this lacrosse camp, but I had at that point already been riding a little bit of BMX and, and had some BMX shirts and stuff like that. Who, who, who introduced you to be specifically, you, you basically you read it in magazines about BMX and you've kind of discovered that. Was yeah. there a scene already in, in place or people doing it or did you have to? Not really, man. And you, it was, it was really interesting because there was a bike shop in the village where I lived and I would ride down there and I would, I had, I mean, I had to save money for a BMX bike. Like we've, we've my family's never had money. It's never been a, it's, what, what would brand be a BMX bike that you get? What was your first bike? So, so I, I, I get this kid, Lou Capanna welded a crossbar on the crappy Ross non BMX bike I had. And we jumped it off of a bunch of stuff until it broke. And then I, I was saving money as much as I could. And, and I wanted this Haro master. Um, but what I had money for, there was a brand called General at the time, and they made a bike called the Hustler that was like a knockoff of the Haro Master. <laughs> so I got the General Hustler, and because at the time, like, image was everything, and, and the brands that I was looking at the people in the magazines, they were riding for Haro. You know, yeah. you, want, you, you, you wanted to you, emulate these wanted, cats. Yeah. So I, would, I went to the, bi the bike shop in the village, didn't have much money, and, and kind of got Haro Master stickers for my bike. Strip the stickers off, put the put the Haro Master stickers on, and and to me it was no difference. I wasn't trying to deceive anybody. I just I just wanted to be a part of this thing that I found. Yeah, you wanted to be a and part of this weird community that's out there somewhere. You know, what it was, and it was cool because the, the the guys at the bike shop, I think at that point saw so few kids that were really really interested in this, but they they had some they had some little offerings of it. Yeah, and so they let me change tires. And then I would get I would get stuff in trade for that. You know, they'd let me hang out in the back and like fix stuff and, and whatever. And That's so, who are these guys? It was this wonderful gateway drug. I was a, yeah. Well, the main guy was named Victor, and, and I ended up even like up until relatively recently, he worked in, in bikes, and I would go see him and stuff like that. And Shout out to Victor. It's interesting. You Shout know, out to Victor. Yeah. I mean, these are these are the people that find us in a way. So like, shout out to those people. And and so the 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 acceptance side had begun to resonate with me. Like these are older dudes that are running a business yeah. and, and yet they, they let this really kind of lurky little weirdo into their space. And also you realize that adults trusted can be, me and adults could be kids too, in a way. And they had, they had to be, you know, at the, at the point they were still very young men cause I was very young. And conversely I had, I had been to, I'd been playing these team sports and, and pretty good at them and went to this lacrosse camp but I had been wearing different stuff already. You know, I think I had already had some you're, BMX shirts. You're and, transforming. Yeah, and and man, I got treated. I got treated like a pariah, and and it was just because that that had a level of homogenization that they only understood exactly what they understood. Yeah, and you're, you're, I didn't understand a hell of a lot. I'm a young kid, but I understood that what they were looking down on me for was was something that was you're deviating. You know, it was. It was purely my personal choice. I wanted to wear a shirt with no, this. No, no, you're deviating. You're deviating. You're not part of the group. 
What are you doing? So, so then that, then that extrapolated into youth group and everything like that. And you know, I, I would wear a, a band shirt to youth group and end up basically being put in the corner like, and, and w- stuff w- like w- that. Like, so. what, what, what? Can you remember one of those band shirts that got you into trouble? <laughs> so, so there's a there's a store in Rochester called the House of Guitars. And uh, next time you come, we're gonna go there and we're Yo. just gonna laugh at it. It's it's a. Uh, it's the weirdest store I've ever seen. Okay. Um, it's got 75 years of, of rock memorabilia or something like that, and it's everywhere, but it looks like litter. Yeah. Like, you go in there, there's thousands of T-shirts and piles. There's videotapes from 100 years. The only thing that's organized about the whole place, and I guess depending on where we go later, I can tell a story about how they've mistreated us when we started playing music. <laughs> but, but, but the only place in the whole building that was organized is where they had, like, the really expensive musical instruments. Yeah. The rest looked like a tornado had hit a retail store. But I wanted to go there anytime I could because that's where they had the stuff. Yeah. And so I would go and, and my mom would bring me, I'd save my money and I'd buy a t-shirt, you know? So I, I, had, a, I had a couple of Suicidal Tendencies t-shirts. Your, um, your, your mom was there with you, trying helping you out with that? Like how, how Helping were, me out would be the wrong way of putting it. She, um, was, she was allowing it. She was allowing it. And, and you know, there was, a, there was a skateboard shop in, in downtown Rochester called Samurai Skates that was tiny. Um, and this man, Art Lou, ran it. And, and at the time, he was a very young man too. And, and he had long, long black hair. And he stood behind the counter of this skateboard shop looking like a, a terrifying samurai <laughs> with, these, with these early days skate decks behind him where the graphics were just... What year was this? Oh, man. It would, it would, be, hard, it would be hard to say. Probably like um, um, late 80s, early 90s? Uh, yeah, late, late 80s. So you're this seeing, is gateway drug stuff. You're seeing, man, so. Sor- you're seeing Sorlac. You're seeing Santa Cruz on the wall probably. Yeah, just, yeah, that's right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, the way I think about hardcore and BMX is, is you know, there was like the first, there was like the first wave. Um, I, I got to see the end of the first wave and the beginnings of the second wave in both of those things. Yeah. Um, a, I mean, I, so like we got... I, I was too young, but I, I, I could see it in the older kids, like that period. And you, you it, it, I mean, a separate, whole, maybe a whole separate conversation really, but like you got to see the end of the people that actually originated this type of stuff and then the beginnings of what came next. The innovators. It was, it was fascinating. Yeah. And so my mom would, would bring me to the skate shop and we would, you know, she would sit outside in the car or, or lurk outside the door or something. The same with House of Guitars. So I, I would find shirts from bands that I had seen in the magazines. I would find shirts from bands I had looked at at Camelot Music when, when she was out shopping in the mall and I was, and I was you know, looking at stuff I couldn't buy at the, at the store. And so I had, a, I had a couple of Suicidal Tendencies shirt. I had a really early Cro-Mags shirt. But and, for, um, for, people, for people that didn't grow up around before that, like imagine a kid walking into, into a youth group with a T-shirt I, that says I Suicidal Tendencies. Now, right now, like a lot of us, it's part of the popular yeah, culture. Yeah, we could tell... Yeah. But like back then, walking into I think a, about that. I think about that. Suicidal you know? tendencies. Like, what's wrong with you? They, they probably didn't know it was a band. No, they probably didn't. They you didn't. know. And and the chrome the chromag shirts always depicted like you know. I mean, the Age of Quarrel was that was the record that really made them stand out. And so, what they're talking about is the Kali Yuga. And so, so concepts like that were in my mind very early. The 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 convergence intro this year was talking about how I had learned about those concepts early enough where I couldn't possibly understand them from a global view. Yeah. But I was, I was putting them out there as like my own personal little Kali Yuga. Something terrible would happen and I'd be like, this is my age of quarrel. This, yeah. is, this, is, my, this is my moment of struggle. Yeah. 
And when, when you get rejected in those types of ways by people that are supposed to be these kind of accepting, structure. nurturing, all it, this kind it, of stuff. This is your base, this is your structure, this is a community, and you're being rejected by them because you chose to wear a T-shirt that you liked of, of, a, of a thing that resonated with you as an individual. Yeah, that, that, that made me feel like I was among who I should be among. And all these people around yeah. you were like, no. Yeah. Why are you wearing that? Are you suicidal? Actually suicidal? Can we talk to you? And then there, there was a, <laughs> there's a metal band called Overkill. I had a couple Overkill shirts and, and, and things like that. And, and it wasn't just youth group at the time, too. It was, it, was, it was middle school and high school and stuff like that. And it just wasn't accepted at the time. Yeah. The, yeah. The, there, would be, there was no understanding of why I would go from being a semi-successful jock to being a total weird outcast to go do these things mostly by Why? myself. Why are you doing this to yourself? You know, ride my bike infinite amounts of miles to, to see one kid that had a bike similar to mine so that we could like fall down in the street together. Like, the, I mean, yeah. and when, you, when you reflect on it, it doesn't make even any sense to me. Yeah. But people were, wor people were worried about that kid. What's wrong with Wor that kid? Worried, worried, worried. Yeah. Did, 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 worried. I, I remember, so for me, uh, there's a band called Brujeria. It's like a, it's a, it's a Mexican American band, yeah. and their whole thing is that they would come out on stage with masks. Yeah, on. yeah, I'm familiar. And one of their one of the record uh, one of the records has a severed head in, on it, a real one. And I had a T-shirt of that on, and I thought it was cool, but I didn't realize. Oh, maybe these people are, don't see. Maybe these people didn't grow up uh, going on Rotten.com or watching gore oh, no. movies with my friend Avi, no, or it. like yeah. they didn't. I thought it was yeah. like, huh, these people are weak. <laughs> I guess yeah, they've never seen any of that. Yeah. But I got into some shit because of that T-shirt. I'm sure of it. Did did and I remember getting. Um, they, they, tried, they tried to send me to therapy, um, and the, for me it was. After my brother so, died, I was 13 and my brother died. And that put my mother into a psychiatric situation and my, my dad into alcoholism. And I felt like I can identify with anybody because nobody, everybody wanted to avoid the darkness about loss and death and grief. Everybody avoided it. Oh, get over it. Yeah, we, we have to move on. Uh, don't wallow in it. Don't, you know, he's gone. He's in a buried somewhere. So everybody was avoiding it. And I wanted to face that shit. And the only people that I found that faced that darkness or that would speak about it was through music or through dark art or through, I mean, I ran away basically. Since I was 13, I've been running away from home. I'm still kind of in a way doing that. But I saw and, and I remember picking up this uh, Sorlax skateboard and it had a guy, Pusshead was his thing. That's right. Just this bolt uh, skull skeleton putrid thing unforgettable unforgettable yeah. but i saw it and i was like ah we're all going there that was my thought process when i was 14 hmm. right and i remember it being seen by my parents and then them sending this we need to figure out if we need to help out ed psychologically or psychiatrically because this, this is concerning i guess I, uh, I, <laughs> that's the exact same thing that, that happened to me. I, I, I learned of another, I learned of a record store in, uh, a couple towns over. And so, you know, I'm a kid. I didn't have a car, of course. I rode my bike there and it was called heavy metal records. And it was this little, it was this little hole in the wall 
the dude that ran it ended up being one of the most interesting figures in my entire life. You know, uh, my friend Matt and I uh, would go to that store and those are some really fond memories for me. And the guy died relatively recently. And I've lost a lot of people, not as many as you, but like it felt like something super real. Cause this, this guy was my, my gateway drug. He had all the great hardcore records. He would tell you anything about any of them. A mentor. But like not in a sense that he was trying to pal around with me or be weird or anything like that. It's just I would go in his store and he could read me like a book. You're like, and you'll like this. Yeah, yeah. Check this out. And he was always right. Yeah. So I'd, I'd ride home on my bike with these vinyls and all this kind of stuff. And, and, um, and then not long after that, the first dancing record came out. And uh, at the time, I, all I was listening to was stuff that was screaming and mean and, and you know, my, my takeaways from a lot of music and, you know, Especially, I mean, the Cro-Mags, I'll mention a bunch because, you know, regardless of whatever they turned into, it was, at the time, it was, it was the one. You yeah. know, it's, these, are, these are street kids singing about stuff that's not totally relatable, relatable to me, but it made very clear the concept that struggle was inevitable. Yeah. And mine was very different than theirs, but I was feeling that. Yeah. You know, I was getting pushed down in, in school and, and treated weird because I was acting differently than, than they wanted. And, and so the, the first dancing record was my first exposure to to heavy without being loud. Yeah. You know, like it wasn't screaming, it was just power it, and it, evil. Yeah. You know, and, and so that's when that's when I got into hot water is 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 my mom got a hold of that first Danzig record and, and it, so it, so people that don't know when they could check this out. Dancing is singing in a clear uh, eligible voice about some dark shit. Yeah. That if you're, like, hearing a hardcore record and your mother, like, walking across the hall, maybe she'll make out some of it. But now she she, she could make out most of this. Well, the hard, the hardcore stuff was, like, parodyable. Yeah. Like parodyable. Yeah, you could you say, know? like, oh, this guy's listening to the screaming yeah, and stuff like it. that. That's you it. You discount it. You and, all of, and all of a sudden you have somebody that's articulating darkness to your child in a room. And one is more powerful than the other. We talked about this, and, and we talked about this. It's, it's cadence and, and, and narration and oration are these are these kind of superpowers. And they're and scary. So w- when you look at bands at that time, they were making parodies of themselves. You know, yeah. th- their parents would be walking by their rooms while the music was playing, and that would be their music video. The parents screaming and running yeah. out of the house. Yeah. You know, Danzig is someone that you know later on did did Elvis covers. You know, I mean, he's he's got this this absolutely unmistakable, uh, unreplicatable voice, um, and he's he's just a he's just a dark, powerful dude, and, and he he wrote he wrote tremendous but extremely challenging lyrics. And how old are you when you're listening to this? When you're, I mean, I'm, a Danzig one came out. I was 13 or 14, maybe. And and, and your your mother's like, what are you? So they were they were worried because some of the other stuff was weird, and I dipped into a little bit of metal stuff, and and you know. Wasp and Overkill and things like that, and those dudes are maniacs for sure. But it's it's almost dismissible because of, in a sense, it's 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 again, it's a little it's bit. A, it's a parody. It's like it a, almost is. It's too much. It, it, it's like in a sense, even a tiny bit clownish at a young age. Yeah. Dancing the dancing record, she got a hold of and read the lyrics, and 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 then that's when they 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 put they put me in therapy for the first time with that. What was the uh, what was the conversation like about it? Like, are you, are you do you want to harm yourself? All of that, all of that, you know, and it was, it was was clear to me that I didn't, you know, I I was still kind of in this point of confusion where I was feeling like I had really found what I needed, 
and nobody else saw that it was what I needed. So I started really kind of just isolating, you know, like I would hang out with the few people I would hang out with and, and it had to be someone that had some sort of similarity to me. I was hunting down any way I could to get to shows. I would ride my bike and lock it up and take a bus to the city. Um, you know, I made some, you know, in, in, in hindsight, questionable choices of traveling to places for shows. But, but now, I have that in my pocket. Yeah. You know, I took a bus to New York City to watch one of the Super Bowls of hardcore when I was 15, and, and I didn't know anything about buses or New York City or anything, maybe 16, but, but no older than that. It was one of the last real Super Bowls of hardcore at the yeah. Ritz. And, and I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't trade that for anything. But when I look back on that, I'm, I'm lucky I didn't get put into a <laughs> mental institution. Yeah. You know? Um, but the other thing that finding those cultures young let me feel was, was just like this empowerment. Like, like this is risky and, and whatever, but it's also like the fact that cool. you, the it's fact okay. that you went through it makes gives it the power. It's like uh, Musashi going into the forest and training on his own when he's a kid. That's right. What's going to freak you out after that? Yeah, I mean, he um, Musashi talks about going to fr places frightening to the common brand of men. Yeah, it's like one of the quotes I read yeah. that when I was a kid. I was 13 when I read that, and I was like, oh, this is a call to adventure, or more so, not adventure. But that's too romantic. This is a call to experience because experience. that's and also experience can be two things it could be great, or it could be horrible. But if you survive it, you know, yeah. level up. It's it's a it's a lesson and, and it's a it's a building block. You know, gateway drug. Again, once you've done it, you know you can do it. So you're 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 now you're involved in music. People, uh, your family is worried about you. Well, well you're, you they try to help you in the ways that. You know, they, they they tried to help you in the way they could. I don't begrudge it. I understand yeah, it. Yeah, but like, how did you take it though? How did you receive these people trying to talk to talk you out of what you felt passionate about, what I, you loved? I, I I rejected it completely, and and I wasn't I wasn't malicious about it or anything like that. But I mean, I I, I don't know. I don't I don't but, know why. But, but I, what I was your reaction? Getting quiet? I had a sensibility about it. You know, I would I would listen and 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 kind of reject in my mind and. I didn't placate, but I wasn't, I wasn't screaming and yelling and cursing and, and stuff like that. I'm sure I did some of that with my parents on occasion, but, but not with the therapist. But they would do clumsy shit like post, uh, like show, um, you know, at the time there was like an Ozzy Osbourne infomercial, like, like this is Satanism, this is whatever. And they would play this. And, oh, and this, is, this, is, this is the, uh, the Satanic Panic era. Type the thing. Satanic yeah. Panic era, yeah, yeah. P PMRC and all that nonsense. And, and you know, so they would, they would play this and... and Try and dissuade you from this and everything, and I'm like, I'm not, I'm not this, you know. I just want to ride this kid's bike and like watch these guys that I look like, that I look like, and that I can relate to play music. Yeah, and it was, it was all manner of of everyone, you know. I mean, B BMX kids and and hardcore and punk kids were were just absolute utter everybody. Yeah, there, there wasn't a there wasn't a there, stereotype there wasn't, for that. There wasn't there a stereotype. Wasn't, no. There wasn't a box that you had to fill. There wasn't anything. There was basically hey. All are welcome, which is in a way very dangerous for people. I can imagine establishment people would be like, all welcoming. That and sounds that sounds bad and dangerous. And I mean, again, another arm of a conversation too. But hardcore was really strange with with that because Rochester was a was a real mean, weird city for that stuff at the time. And and when, was, when you say mean, mean and weird, what do you mean by like the the music scene was mean and weird? Music scene was mean and weird. Um, was it divisive in a way? What, what, what was going on? I mean, you'd get, you know, the, the hardcore there at the time was, was either mean or not mean. Like there was some really, really cool bands that have, that have since been 
kind of heralded as, as real kind of front runners and, and um, almost foreshadowing what a lot of great music, like some of the stuff from DC on Discord and stuff sounded like was, was some of these bands from Rochester. The other side of the coin was like these heavy, really mean, dark hardcore. That's the stuff that I. That's the stuff that I kind of latched onto. A couple of those kids kind of took me under their wing a little bit. When you see, when you say mean, like violence necessary. Vi- violence. Yeah, violence so. necessary. Uh, anger, f- fury. It's not. It's like hey. And and at the time there wasn't there wasn't the level of uh, manufactured camaraderie that that some hardcore has now. It, you, it matured. It wasn't there. It was. It was still in its. I don't know where I am. Not there. If 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 the band was mean, the crowd was was mean. You know, the the, the intended result was achieved. The, the, the band the, elicited anger. The hostility. How did it how did it manifest in the crowd? Was it because if you if you're not tough and you're trying to be in the crowd, you're gonna get your ass kicked? Or well, the ear, the earlier days of that stuff was also strange because you didn't really know what you were getting into yet. You just saw a strange flyer and you wanted to participate in it and, and whatever. So you'd get metalheads, you'd get this, this small spattering of hardcore kids uh, that were around and then you'd get punks and then you'd get skinheads. But like mostly where we were, the wrong kind of skinheads. Yeah. Uh, and when, you, when you say the wrong type of skinheads, what do you mean? The kind that don't like people for the wrong reasons. Okay. Those um, types. Yeah. 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 And, and, and it, it's so... It was pervasive. It was perva- yeah, yeah. It's 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 interesting and fascinating how how you know we're still struggling in the U.S. with it now, you know. But it's like a moment. It's 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 always been there. It's always it's always been there. Yeah. This 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 expression of it, I guess. And just like everything, I mean, exposure breeds familiarity. You know, you, you, you see these, these kind of wrong-minded dudes fighting in shows for wrong reasons. You know, and occasionally just people would get into scuffles at shows. Someone hits someone too hard or whatever. But these... You're, 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 you're carrying justice with you from that since you were a kid, though. That's so, for sure. So when you saw it... Sure. When you, when you, Already. When you, yeah, when you saw it there, you're like, hey, fuck, this is wrong. It, it, it was a combustible environment. But, but forcing it to combust was what we started being really critical of. You know, like we wanted this, like we, we wanted these shows to exist. We wanted these venues to exist. Yeah. And, 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 and the conflict that came from them was part of the reason why this, this community was energized. And kept, yeah. like you were a part of something that was changing shit, basically. And, and in a lot of cool ways, it made, it made a unity, you know? It's, it's, um, it's, kind of, it's kind of trite to say at the time, but for, for people that weren't there, you, you, you wouldn't have really understood how that made a camaraderie against this kind of common enemy. Yeah. You know? And so as, as things started evolving and uh, I was going to shows all the time, um, I'd started to get, you know, familiar with some people in some local bands and, and travel to shows and things like that. Um, I wanted to book shows. I wanted to play in a band, you know? And, and you, wanted, you, you wanted to get into the, you wanted to cre- get into the creation of it now. Yeah. And, and it was the same with BMX, but I didn't have access to that yet. Like BMX yeah. was still in the point where I was doing it all the time. But, we, for, for people that don't know, B, the, where was the cradle of BMX? It's all the way in California. So you're looking oh, at some of these things from like from man across the country, basically so, far away. So I mean, California was the mecca. It was the holy land, you know. But 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 you know, there was there was interesting stuff happening in Florida. There was some real interesting stuff happening in the Midwest. There was, there was a small trick team locally in Rochester, yeah. and I would go watch their demos. And and this is this this was this was. Impor- very important to me is is 
I was being treated like a pariah by everyone in my life except the high-level people that I would meet yeah. in these countercultures. Yeah. You know, and this is, this is that it's was one of the standout said, well, moments. You're invested, so you want to create music now. Yeah. yeah. Because yeah. BMX is still, it's across the country. It's, it's in small ways kind of encroaching maybe, but it's still something far off. The closest thing to you at that point was music. That's exactly right. So... Like I, I, I screamed in a few bands for a bit. Yeah, you know? yeah. For yeah. me, it's like I picked up a bunch of instruments, and I am. That's why I'm known for making shanks. Basically, I, 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 I make do. You know, yeah, me neither. S- sitting with something. Like for you, like what was what was your intro into music? Like, did you pick up an instrument? That you that, were you wanting to scream? Yeah. Like, I, what what was that like? The the, ro- the role that became available to me was was we we wanted to book shows because we had ideas that we thought we could do well. And we wanted to contribute to the scene. You know, around that time, contributing to the scene was the big thing. Yeah. Do something. Yeah. Right? Make Set a up st- a show. That's um, it. Make a zine. Promote. Make a, make a scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, art around it. Yep. Sell uh, countercultural regalia around it. Yeah, stuff that we would screen print in my attic with a, with a bought screen printer or a, a paper zine that we would make at Kinko's. And, and, yeah, that's you know, you're describing my youth with Avi and, and some of his friends. That they, they would... Print out these cool ass. Where'd you get that? Oh, we made like four of them in my basement. It's you know? ev- it's everything. It's everything. You know? But they, I, mean, they, I mean, I would pay whatever amount of money I could to get some of those amazing. He would. Uh, he had a fr- He has a friend here in Tijuana who's like a graffiti artist. He would make uh, the ex president T shirt when it said "Mad" underneath it, mm. and that was like the coolest thing in the world. So you got involved in basically that. You wanted to be part of the that. Aspect yeah, of the music. I wanted to contribute. I didn't. I didn't just want to take from it. You know, I, yeah. even at the time, I was like, "This is giving me. This is giving me everything." You know, I'm, get, I'm getting to see the world through some some eyes that most people do not get to see it through. So I'd gotten. I mean, I was 15, 16. I'd seen riots. I'd been in the back of a cop car, not to get arrested, but just to be safe. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's it's. I, I knew even then, people don't get to see that stuff. No. You know. What, what are you doing? What, what are you doing? Are you, are, you, are you setting up shows? Setting up shows. We started with that. Um, the opportunity that I had to get into music was our friends. Uh, my friends had a band uh, that I was kind of just helping out, like move stuff around, and I was there all the time. And, and it was, a, it was a, the kid that sang was someone that I knew from my hometown. And we, we got, we were, we had, we both had similar sensibilities about um, honor and integrity and, and, revenge in some senses you know retribution yeah and and he was singing for the band um his course was changing a little bit he 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 was really drawn to the military he he wanted to go to the military so a few shows into this band's career the opportunity that i had to do was was jump in and sing sing for that band um so 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 that's an interest so you, you you go from somebody that is rejected you get quiet about some of these ideas around your community that you had when you were growing up. You grew out of it, and you find this other community. You want to get involved in it. Now you're in front of people, screaming a message. Uh, uh, it, it was, it was the strangest thing. How, how, how was that feel? That the, the first that first show, stepping out there where you're, uh, you're focal, <laughs> being a focal point. Which I that's yeah. I've had that experience in my life. That first focal point experience like what was that like for you uh it, it was it was crazy i i uh, the, the the amount of people in that room at the time that i cared about at the time was significant and totally whacked out i, I worked at a very strange totally inept golf course for a while 
And it, it was like if Stephen King created a golf course was this place. It's kind of like kind of like dilapidated a little bit. Everything I mean, was creepy. dilapidated. I had hip waders on pulling possums out of the pool. Yeah. Like it was it was terrible. You know, They're, they need us to dig trenches, but the trencher only worked halfway, so the rest <laughs> was by hand. You know, just a just a really kind of like hilariously yeah, purgatory, a purgatory space. This the, the dude that ran the golf course was in the crowd at the first show, and and. My, my my first show with that band was with was opening for Sick of It All. Wow. And besides being so nervous that I barely could see straight um, and the sound actually being good, which showed us how terrible we were, um, the, the takeaway from that show was was the guys from Sick of It All were just wonderful. Yeah. You know, I mean, Luke, Luke Holler is, is someone that to this to this day he doesn't know me from anybody, but I would, I would give him the shirt off my back because he was kind to me. Like he, he was giving me tips on how to not lose my voice. You know, he was giving me suggestions about merch. You know, it's, it's, he, did, he, he just like the BMX guys, they did not have to be nice to me. Yeah. And they were anyway. Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, you, you, uh, when you got here, you gave a, uh, an impromptu class on how to swing a, a kettlebell to our security guy here at the entrance. Yeah. Because that, how I, I guess, I don't have to ask you where you learned how to be like that. These are the people that gave you the example. They taught me. No, knowing how rejection felt, but then knowing how rejection felt from people that I really, truly didn't care about acceptance from. Yeah. And then knowing what acceptance felt like from people that I could never have expected acceptance from. It's, it's wild to think about the fact that, you. I mean, you grew up, with religion in your background and people like there, and you learn this, you learn random act of kindness to unexpecting people from a guy in a, in a band. Yeah. In a, in yeah. a, in a hardcore. Like, and some BMX riders wearing leather pants and pink, you know, and, like just crazy. Th those are the teachers. Yeah, that's it. Those are the teachers. It, um, and it, it, it taught me more than just those simple instances could have ever taught me. Yeah. You know? Um, so you, you, go, you go through this band phase. Like what, is, yeah. what, what does that give you, that experience? What does that experience give you? I mean, geez, just enough knife life navigation that you could make a million different choices differently than you would have two years prior. Yeah. You know, I mean, I knew how to run a very small business with people that didn't always get along. Um, booking shows in Rochester at the time, I mean, it should have come with a Surgeon General's warning. I mean, it, it, was, it was violent and totally weird every time. Even if a show went well, went well meant you almost broke even and no one got hurt. Yeah. <laughs> um, the PA went back to the sound studio, you know, in one piece, you know, and, and it, was, it was these very utility type of projects. Yeah. You, you would rent something, drive it around in your car, put it at the place. Renting space to a 16 or 17-year-old kid to do a show was something that most people did not want to do. So there had to be a level of, of well-intentioned deception to any of that. You, know, you I had mean, to be political. You had to be an admin. You had to crisis navigate. You had, it, it, it's, I mean, you're, you're at, at some point, you're security. It's you know? an insane I'm, university. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a 16, 17-year-old kid, and I was, I was creative, and I'd been in some physical trouble, and I'd seen wild stuff go down, but I wasn't tough. I wasn't... I didn't know anything about fighting. You yeah. know, I, I knew that I didn't know anything about fighting, so I would stack the deck. You know, we, we would bring tools and, and we would make sure that things happened and, and didn't happen. Uh, when um, you say tools, you mean like uh, 
Sports related tools. Sports related. Like a, did could did, be. did, did, did Batman be. make an appearance? Could be. Yes, and um, <laughs> I think uh, billiards is a sport. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Um, of course. And yeah, you yeah. Know, things like that. If we could get it at Home Depot or or get it from the sports store, then it sometimes helped us. Yeah. Ensure the safety of others at shows. And we're, we're here in Mexico. We're horrible. We don't have bats. We have machetes. Yeah, we, 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 would, we, would, we would have machetes at shows just in case people calm down, pull out the machete. Yeah. Apparently that makes people clear out sometimes. I, I mean, where was this information for me then? That would have, that would have solved me a lot, that would have solved Again, me a lot of bumps and bruises. Again, you know, next time around, let's try and be born in the same area yeah. and we'll hang out when yeah, we're kids. Right. You know? Next time. We'll, we'll send we'll, smoke signals. We'll figure it out. You, so you go through this process of music. Now, fit, like drugs, substances, uh, what, what are these in the environment? What, what are they doing? Yeah, they, they're, they're around me. Um, uh, straight edge was a big thing at yeah, the time. Yeah, um, uh, th- I, that's, that's where the question comes from. Like, it's a, it's a huge question. It's, it's, why, 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 that's a, because I learned of, about straight edge through like elements of where you, where that culture you were growing up. We, like me and Avi, I, Again, mention him a lot because he grew up with me. Uh, we would see that with people coming in with like, ah, we're hardcore straight edge people, and they had the tattoos and everything of like that. But they were inspired and or they weren't part of the inception of it. So yeah, why yeah. why was that a thing in that environment? Like, where did that come from? A lot of the bands were were born of self improvement, positive you know, contribute to society, even though they were presenting it in really hard and sometimes pretty caustic ways, there was a lot of positivity in that scene. And a lot of it was also a rejection of what they'd seen in metal at the time or what they'd seen in punk. You know, like a lot lot of early and, you know, second wave hardcore was rejection of, of what the punk scene was. You know, they don't want these, they don't, they don't want these drunks there. Wacky dressed maniacs drunk in the corner. You know, they want, they want to be, physically fit and straight and know how to fight and be able to contribute to society in, in ways that are actually tangible. Yeah. You know, if, if you're, if you're drunk in the corner, you're not contributing to anything. Yeah. And, 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 and was that enforced? What do you mean enforced? I mean, you know, if they, if you saw elements of somebody pulling out something somewhere. Not, not where we were. There, there were elements of that in other cities, and, and Straight Edge t- took some took some real weird roller coaster rides. You know, it, it started out really positively, but even then, it got a bad rap as as an elitist type of thing. Puritanical and elite, uh, um, at least for us. Like when I experienced it, I viewed it as oh. These people looking down at me because I have a yeah. beer in my hand. And you, you know? know what? A lot of times that was the case. And, yeah. And, we didn't get into that. Rochester was kind of rode this kind of middle middle ground. Buffalo and Syracuse and some of these other scenes they had they had much more straight edge type identity or X other type of identity yeah. or whatever. Um, our actual hardcore scene was so small. Shows were moderately well attended, but it was it was metalheads and punks and skinheads and, and the small hardcore kids. Yeah. Um, so we, we, we didn't really have the luxury of, of being like, if you're not straight edge, you're out. No, you, you had to take in and f- others. For me, I, I, straight edge became something that was very important to me. I was never the big X up, you know, like, like 
you know, but, but um, I, I, <laughs> I had had one experience with, with alcohol at the time and I was, I was at a party with my, with, uh, my cousin in Buffalo. And again, just based on like wearing the wrong shirt at the wrong time, um, I, I, got, I, I got put in a van by four dudes and they beat the crap out of me. And I think it was either talking to the wrong girl at the wrong time, it was wearing the wrong shirt at a fancy party, it was whatever the case was, but they just weren't having it. Yeah. Um, and I didn't know enough to know, and I wasn't drunk, but I think just in the interest of feeling like such an outcast, it was one of the only times in my life that I did something for acceptance that I didn't feel right about. Yeah. You know what I mean? And that was a lesson there. That's the universe sending you a lesson. Yeah, I didn't. I mean, I had, I had probably, I, I mean, one or maybe two beers, but no more than that. That, was, that, when you're, that was just... When you're 15 or whatever, you know, that's enough. That's enough. I didn't have my full sensibilities about me, and, and, and I got punished in a significant way. I was, I was injured from that. Um, you know, there was, there was a lot. I could have gotten in a ton of trouble for that. Um, it, taught me some, it taught me some super important lessons, and, and, and it also taught you a lesson about resourcefulness. Like, I didn't ever want to be put in that position again. Yeah, so no, 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 that's a, yeah, I didn't have that. And I've been, I've been, I've been <laughs> knocked around a lot since then, but not like that. Yeah. And, and then I didn't, I didn't end up, I mean, I still don't drink, yeah. uh, but I didn't end up drinking again anything until I was in my mid-20s where, you know, I would have, I would have wished someone to try that again. Yeah. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, yeah, you, um, you, 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 so... That's an interesting uh, thing. You you were beaten horribly. A lot of people, after a beating like that, obviously, PTSD was probably not in the lexicon that you were managing at that age and stuff like that, but probably some trauma was created or something happened as far as damage goes. You, you didn't trust anyone behind you. Exactly. You know, and, and, and not to mystify it, like, man, especially with someone like you. No, like, no. that's that's... But that, it changes you. That's what it felt like. You it know? changes and, you. And so then, you know, f feeling that same type of rejection in school, and, and this is this is where really, you know, I'm definitely not trying to paint a positive picture of how I was as a youth. I, I wasn't harmful to others. Um, if we stole, it was from institutions, never from individuals. But but the craziest thing for me is I would go to school, I would go to high school, I would get treated poorly. I, I was I was writing for the high school newspaper. Um, I would try and write conscious, important things for the high school newspaper. The lyrics we were writing were conscious and important. Some of them I would still pass off today. Um, I was getting, you know, treated poorly about stories in the high school newspaper. Yeah. Uh, I got chased around by a handful of kids with a knife because I wrote a movie review they didn't like. You know, and, and it was just, I was an easy target because there wasn't a lot of me. Yeah. You know? But then I would go and, and you know, the, the older guys that were in the band, God love them, they'd, they'd come and pick me up at high school and we'd drive to Ohio and play a show in front of 300 people that were, that were excited to see us. They would buy our merch, Wild. you know, and, and I would drive back and they would drop me off for two hours of sleep and I'd go back to school the next day and get treated like hell. Yeah. You know, you're, and you're back, you're back in this, yeah, purgatory, basically. It was a strange thing to try and develop a personality amidst... Yeah, you know, because you just you just felt like uh, you didn't really know which side of the bed you were on. How long does this music thing last? Like, what? Uh... So we so the 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 uh, the band was uh, 1992, early 19. What's the name of the band? You didn't say the um, name of the band. The band was called Moment of Truth. Moment of Truth. Yeah. So people can. 
Yeah, our, yeah. So there's there's still a little bit of an iteration of it now, but but what we did, we put out a couple of records. Um, uh, the original singer and I named it together when we were in in high school, and um, uh, it was a great time. 1993 to 19, 1992, 1993 to 1996, we we played our our last show in late 1996, um, and we played quite a bit of shows. I I had a number in my mind, and I think I don't know how I'm. I don't make things up, you know, but I, I, I made, I'm, I had this number in my mind about something, maybe it was practices or something, but, but um, Jim, the drummer is still a good friend of mine. And I said, man, did we play this many shows? And he was like, when the hell would we play? But it, we played a yeah. significant amount of shows for a, a mid-level band at that time. Yeah. Um, fortunate as hell, man. That, that era of hardcore was magical. We got to play with luminaries. Wow see them see luminaries you know at the time when they were just absolutely in their primes terrifying yeah you know you'd watch you know different front men create these personas for themselves and it was it was like watching for me it was like watching a movie yeah you know and and we got to play with all these bands i got to bring some of these most legendary bands to rochester um i got to make sure that those shows were not unmitigated disasters you know, it, it's like we, we really did contribute. That's you know, we, we, we did everything that we could. What ended it for you? Um, I mean, the, the band ended and it wasn't, a, it wasn't like a mean, you know, everybody's yeah. fighting breakup. It was just, you know. We need good. to fix, everybody has to figure out their own thing. That's it. I mean, yeah. and, and good musicians in hardcore are tough to come by and consistency in life at that time was almost impossible. Yeah. At the time, our bass player lived in Middlebury, Vermont. So when we would either play shows or record, we would go get him. Um, my, 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 my troublemaking co-pilot Curly would always drive with me. And so we would run up and get him and bring him back. And, and, you know, any, any type of mischief would ensue on the way up and back. Um, if, uh, do you want the house of guitars story now? Sure. Let's do that. I guess. Um, is a statute of limitations on theft? I think so. Yeah. Um, so our, our bass player was way, way too talented for our band. Okay. Like he was he was going to school for music. Yeah, well, like what are you doing with the so so talented but loved hardcore. Yeah. Great great dude. Um we hated the house of guitars because we loved to go there and buy shirts, but when we would try and go and rent equipment or anything like that, the people that ran this store were metalheads but like also glam ones. Not yeah. like dirty overkill metalheads, like like glam metalheads. Yeah, they're not you they're not you. Te they're, teased up hair. They see hardcore kids, they think like these kids are totally unrelatable to us. They got 18 bucks in their pockets. They're doing nothing for us. So they treated us like, like shit. terrible. So we would always scheme, you know, we had this like small crew, my brother and Curly and, and our next door neighbor. And then, you know, in this particular case, one other person, but um, I wanted to get something for our bass player. You wanted to procure a gift, liberate a gift. Yeah. Something, something worthy of him, you know? Yeah, 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 I get and, it. You uh, wanted to honor somebody. It's beautiful, and that's beautiful. So we were just watching how aloof these cats were that ran this store. Like, they're not paying attention to anything except themselves, you know, the, the teased-up hair chicks that are in the front or whatever. And, and so we, we set up these... We set, <laughs> it feels hilarious to say this to you, but we set up a perimeter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And um, we, had, we had a plan, and... Um, I walked in and asked to see this bass and, and really calmly kind of walked it around the store and looked at it and, and uh, waited for the moment and, and walked this $3,000 six string bass out the 
side door of the House of Guitars. Yeah. And I don't Chris. know if he still has it, but he, if he happened to listen to this, I'd like to find out. Chris Angel. Yeah, gone. You know, got but, in the car, drove it home. You know, but again, you know, as long as it's not for you, <laughs> you know, I, I, grew, I grew up with that honor. That, that's, that was a rule, you know. It's cool as long as it's not for you. When you said this yesterday, it popped back in my head a couple of minutes ago, and I was thinking, like, yeah, this is where we are. That's the rule. I mean, I, you know, that's 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 one of the rules that I gave my kid. You know, every now and then, life will bring you some things that you have to take. Yeah, but it always has to be for others, not for you. You know, that's that's the weird lesson. I, at least for me, I wish somebody gave me that lesson early. But for you, you have to learn that lesson the hard way by going through it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You. Now this guy, this goes away. BMX, where, where, you, you get involved in. Like it seems like it's this is like a common theme with you. You love something, you're passionate about it, and you you want to better it and or go into it and innovate it and legit support whatever it is that you've put your mind to. You went to music, you did that. And now BMX comes into the into your. Yeah. What was your foray into that? How did you get involved in this uh, industry? I've, n I've never been a good bystander, you know, and, and it, it was the same at shows, and, and I'm not trying to paint myself as anything I'm not, but, like, if, if someone was getting beat up at a show or, or, or something unfair was happening at a show, um, especially if it came to, like, skinheads and stuff like that, like, we would, that was, that was it. You would appear. Yeah, we, I mean, and, and it didn't always go well because we were just normal-ass kids, but that, that's, that's true up until... That's fascinating. Now. That's true till now. That's fascinating for because as a kid that you're you're not talking about freedom, you're talking about responsibility. So you had that you, that's a you you've had responsibility. You felt this responsibility to the people there. It's like a sense of it's like a sense of wanting to protect the things that you enjoy. Yeah. Uh, but but taken to like maybe a strange degree for a kid of that age. Well, I guess for me, like whenever people talk about, hey, what do you want? Freedom or responsibility? Responsibility. Why? Because it gives you purpose and if you're per if you don't have purpose that's to me the scariest thing that you can go towards like if i didn't have purpose that would be that's my hell you know mm. so i i can imagine that i, I think that's kind of the same yeah. thing, place where you ended up in that I, I can i can agree with that yeah um so you, you, hardcore stayed there you know i i still booked shows um even when I moved back from California, we, we, we again booked shows. Uh, they were an unmitigated disaster. Cop riots, mace, all this ridiculous stuff. And, and, and they went well because, um, you know, realistically, anyone causing trouble at those things is not going to be as good at it as we are. Yeah. Um, and, and, but we started thinking risk-reward. Okay, what, what's going to be next? You know, we got, we got away with some shit and, 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 you know, we got a little bit lucky. Yeah. And we're not going to continue to play that card. Um, so, so BMX turned from simply just something I enjoyed to something I was actually doing. Um, how, when how, I got a chance to, um, put a, a little BMX section at one of the only cool local skate shops. Okay. So, so, so you, you, you were given a space at a local skate shop Yeah. and like, who knows about this stuff? Let's, and you were the weirdo yeah. that was not only knowing about it, but you were like, but like in it. Like, like I wasn't, I was not a bystander, even at the time. And, and I've, I've, <laughs> I was never particularly great at BMX riding, but damn, did I try. So, so I was better than a lot of the kids simply because I was willing to fall down. 
Yeah. And, and so that was, taking, that was getting noticed. Um, got the opportunity to, to do this thing. And, and so that was really my first uh, industry-related thing. So you start learning how to navigate vendors. You start learning what's going to sell. You, you start you start calling the people that manufacture what you're selling. Yeah, yeah. And at the time, that's like small crews. You know, you're 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 literally calling the people that may be making the stuff, or you're calling a big company and saying, "Hey, do you have a minimum, or can we order three of these for a weird shop in Rochester, New York?" Yeah, yeah. You know, and and then you circle the wagons and you bring your friends in and you tell them, "Don't order mail order. Come to the store." Because there's a community building there. You're, you know? you're building it. Yeah, yeah. And, you're building it. And so, so it just, and that was, man, that again, could be a story of its own. That skate shop was, was absolutely bananas. You know, there were fights outside every day. People would steal, and they'd be so clumsy about stealing that while they were still in the midst of stealing, we would just lock the door. <laughs> and, and, I mean, it was, it was amazing. The owner yeah. of the, st- the shop was a real interesting dude, and, and even at one point... Um, the other, the other kid, the kid that managed the shop, is is still kind of a friend of mine. Um, we could not be more different. Uh, the first trade show we went to, he and he and the brother of the owner uh, made me drive, and they smoked pot all the way to Philadelphia to the Interbike show, and I drove the entire trip with my head out the window. And so by the time I got to Philadelphia, I could barely see for two days, you know. <laughs> And how, how, what did that do to your attitude about all the whole thing? I, I was so good natured about all of it because I was just so stoked. You, you know, you, were, like, you just wanted to be there. Like it was, it was. I felt like I had been given a gift. You know, like yeah. as, as quirky as this was, and and as as really ill fitting from a personality standpoint. I mean, the 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 skate shop at the time was, uh, it was it was really just kind of a raw, weird environment. Um, but it went really, it went really, it went really well. It how went as well the, how, as something like that could how, go. How did that basically take, you started calling people, creating this community through you because you were not only somebody that knew about the, getting these things, but also, you know, you used them. You were riding, you were yeah. breaking shit. You were breaking yeah. yourself a few times. Yeah. Um, Getting cool little gifts like the, like the, like the, the, the sh- sh- um, shop sold shoes. And so you'd get kind of like a, a, a shop sponsorship from one of these footwear companies. Yeah. You know, so for, for a few months, uh, the rep from America uh, would give me some shoes. America. You know? And I mean, I remember the first time that I got a free pair of shoes, man, you feel like you just won a ride to the moon. And, and uh, at that point, I think for me, it was, it was never about the stuff, but it was just, it was just kind of about that feeling. You know, yeah. like you're getting, you're getting a tiny bit of reciprocation for something that you feel like you're, you're really investing in a lot. So- and it was it was tremendous. the the uh, The skate shop thing went went for a while. It it was cool. It definitely had an expiration date. Um, the guy that owned the store had a gambling problem, and would routinely spend all the money that the store made on football bets. So the, the kid that ran the store and myself ended up having to sell stuff and keep the money. Yeah. And and neither of us were minded in that way. You know, again, we, we might steal from institutions, but we're never going to steal from individuals. Yeah. But here we are. Rent is a real thing. You know, food is a real thing. So the fact that this dude is spending three grand a month on, you know, the Patriots um, is not our fucking problem. Yeah. You know, yeah. So, so we just had to make do what we made do. And, and I lost my taste for that completely. Um, and then I just got some other opportunities. California calls. Like how 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 how's that uh, 
How do you make it out there? BM, BMX, uh, the community that you're now a part of there, trying to form it, calling some of these companies directly, getting some of the gear, being on the inside of things, trade shows, all of that. Uh, but you've been in, in it for a while now, since you were a kid, and all of a sudden, this Mecca, this long, far-off place of California where that's, that's where the action is happening and this sport that is part of your life. How, how, do you, how do you get out there? BMX had taken a really interesting evolution. Sh street riding became a really big thing. Um, very early on racing, very early on freestyle, you know, like the movie Rad, ground tricks and things like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pastels and leathers and, and you know, whatever. And then, and then street riding started sneaking in. And it was, it was, you know, a lot like hardcore in the sense where it was just, you know, a little bit dirtier, a little bit more raw. You could do it kind of any place. You were looking for banks to walls. You were looking for stairs to jump down. You were looking for just stuff to grind on. And the, for, the forbidden aspect of like doing that in places where it's maybe you weren't welcomed and stuff like that, just like the never nowhere were you welcome. Yeah, never Kick, so, kicked out of everywhere. So the, again, the, the, this is the perfect place for you. And so I, I, I bit down on that hard because Rochester didn't have any ramps. You know, we, when we eventually did have ramps, it was absolute scheme and strategy to get them there. We would pay a tiny skate park that had one little ramp and enormous amount of money for two hours with with just the ramps on our own or, or something like that yeah. or we'd build it or whatever but the reality is street riding was our thing because that's what you could do you could do it anywhere yeah in the winter in rochester um we would go into the uh, police parking garage and on the second floor of the police parking garage it was kind of an obscured view and, and there was like one weird ledge you could grind down and just a bunch of curbs and and it was heated so so even if you just jumped off a curb or something you were still riding your bike you know yeah so, so street riding really became this thing, and um, the transition away from the um, skate shop was uh, helping a kid that, that had a small brand develop it into a much, much better brand in Rochester. Like it was a, what was a brand based around? Like a uh, product? Make, making products. Ma like what, 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 what were you making? Like really industrial strength stuff for this new iteration of street riding, like indestructible type stuff, sprockets, pegs. Uh, things like that, Ax axles for the wheels, yeah, yeah, yeah. St stuff that you just almost couldn't destroy. But, but nobody was making it. You can buy it anywhere or specifically for that. So you basically were creating something from nothing. Yeah, his his idea was great. He's, he's a moron, but but the reality is his idea was great, and he still has a very successful brand. Um, cool. You know, he, he's just one of those dudes that uh, he and I maybe didn't fit philosophically. He could have been running a Subway restaurant, and he would have done it really, really well. I wanted to be BMX. Yeah, yeah. And so that's what started giving me access to higher level people and, and names in the industry and stuff because we were making amazing stuff. You were making amazing stuff. People were using it. People were talking about it. The word was spreading and like, who's it's, behind this weird shit? It's true. And it, it's, it's strange to think about it that way, but, but he, he was making a, a real name for himself with the brand by being you know, a really quirky type of character. And then the products were speaking for themselves. They were very hard to destroy. They were extremely expensive, and we were making most of them in Rochester. Wow. So then you started learning about navigating manufacturing. You started learning about all this different Design, stuff. Design, machining, manufacturing. Distribution. Product testing. Art direction. All of that. Like my, my first, my first like real art director friend was, was a kid who had worked for one of the BMX magazines that was now working for us at this brand. Yeah. And he's the one, our first ever Hell on Earth show 
he was the one that did the first flyer for that in 1995, you know? So, so it's, it was all seeming together in this cool way. Um, <laughs> that company was cool. It was a gateway drug to a lot of different stuff. Um, but, you know, he'd, he'd routinely go through periods where he would try and fire both of us and we would just tell him no, or, or like one of the most famous riders in the world would be like, I would love to ride this part. And he'd be like, oh, it's not in the budget. And I would be like, do you want to build a brand or do you want to save eight bucks? Like we're going to, if, if someone legendary asks you for something. You, let's, let's go. Yeah, what, are, what are we doing here? It's either a fuck you yes know? or a fuck no. That's, a, that's exactly right. Yes. And, and so um, eventually that just it wasn't going to work. Yeah. I, I, got, uh, <laughs> I got invited because we were doing advertisements in this video magazine at the time. That's kind of how information circulated outside of the magazines is uh, a company called Props uh, started this video magazine. Mm-hmm. And they would send filmers around to chronicle different stuff that was going on in BMX at the time. It, cool. was, it, was, it was amazing. Yeah. It was like all of a sudden you had this snapshot into the world around you that you couldn't quite reach. Yeah. And so it wasn't just pictures anymore. It was like moving people, talking about stuff. That's back it. Behind the scenes. Like what's <laughs> that, that, that type of thing. That's exactly what it was. Yeah. Like there would be short interviews with a scene. There would be clips from a contest or something like that. And, and uh, we watched every single one. You know, when they would promote something, we would go attend it. And, and we, we went to one contest in, in outside Chicago. And we drove all the way straight there from Rochester, which is not close at all. Um, slept for a few hours on the ramps when we got there and then, and then rode in the contest. And, and again, like I worked real hard, but I wasn't all that good at BMX riding. I had a good day. Yeah. Um, I, I pulled, I pulled, you know, there was like a really tall quarter pipe and I, I did a fakey wall ride on the wall behind the quarter pipe, pulled back in, rolled out, pulled it. It was my first ever real clip in a BMX video. Alignment. And so it was props video magazine. This contest got covered. I got a clip in this in this thing. Everything, was, everything aligned. I was, I mean, to, to think about like a, a one single moment eliciting that much excitement in a person, it, it, it felt like some. I felt like I had reached some crazy point. I, I, I keep saying this in a, in a lot of interviews. Uh, it is through alignment that we experience the divine in life. Like when everything is exactly what it has to be. You know, this, this moments of alignment. You were in this moment. Usually, that's when we get pulled into a uh, like a, a character arc, <laughs> basically. And th- and that's essentially what hit, you know. Yeah. So there was this, this small exposure to me through this thing, and then this small exposure to me through working at this other company. And um, props came up with this again fantastic idea called Road Fools. Uh, it was a knockoff of Road Rules, that stupid show they had on TV at the yeah. time. Yeah. And. They did the first episode of Road Fools with some of the most legendary riders ever, and it was just this gangbusters cool thing. They just put them in this entertainer's bus and ran them around the country riding and, and talking doc, and goofing doc, around. Yeah, documenting these kids living the life that everybody dreams about. Just Absolute mania. Some of the best riding ever went down. Conversationally, humor-wise, it was, it was something nobody had ever seen, and um, I got invited on the second one. Wow. So Road Fools 2, I, I got the opportunity to go on. And, man, to say that I was out of my league, I, if I said anything but that, I would be totally self-deluded. Yeah. Um, but I was, I was more than stoked to be there. I was on time. I did anything I could, you know, and, and, uh, and that was it. Um, I made some really good friends on that trip, and um, the trip itself was totally insane. Everybody got injured. We drove a million miles, sometimes for nothing, 
um, some of the first exposure to the West Coast that I had had. Um, and it was it was just it was utter madness, yeah. you know. I mean, we 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 were we ended up at a we ended up at some type of like high dollar party at the Phoenix Hotel in San Francisco as a bunch of really like messed up, whacked out BMXers. Um, one of the kids on the trip jumped off the roof of the Phoenix Hotel into the pool on his bike. There was a topless girl next to the pool at the time. Like we we, we were like, where are, are we? we? Yeah, you know. And yeah. and and that was one thing I think did have in common with everybody is even the real popular or su- successful people in BMX at the time, they'd never been treated like this. Yeah, this is new for everybody. Props had bought Hank Williams 3's old tour bus to run us around on. <laughs> so we literally were sleeping in these bunks that these legendary rockers were, you know, occupying. And it was, it was to me, to me it, was, it, was, it was really... It was sacred space. Yeah, it was something, man. It and, was sacred and, space. Uh, the trip ended, and I went back to what I was doing. Uh, but then, very soon after that, um, one of the people, uh, Brian Castillo, that I had met on the on the trip, got to be a good friend, and and an opportunity came up at this company he was working at in, in California, and he thought of me immediately, and and I went out and visited, um, and I didn't even need to go out and visit, you know. You were I mean, already sold. Yeah, that that could have been the seventh <laughs> layer of hell, and I'd have been there in three months, you know. Yeah. So so I went out and visited, saw the lay of the land. Um, accepted the job, and January tenth of nineteen ninety nine, um, you know, ended up ended up in California. Off in California, and and leave, leaving Rochester, of course. Anytime you leave where you were where you were from, it's different. You know, there's there's things to think about there. But um, Rochester was also pushing me out. Yeah, um, you were, you would have grown it basically in I, a way. In, in in another way too, and it may have been mystified a little bit, but I was persona non grata in some respects there. You know. Um, I think I think in a lot of ways I had cashed in the chips I had to cash in at the time, and it was it was it was hard to leave, but it was also not something that I ever would have second guessed. Um, I felt supreme clarity making that choice, and and drove to California, and and quite honestly, man, a lot of turmoil happened as soon as I got to California with that company. Uh, Brian and and his partner ended up leaving soon after that, and just based on the fact that I was willing to hustle and I knew what I was doing and I I knew that I was resourceful. Yeah. Um, I just I just took it over. I, I ended up basically running that arm of the company, um, doing it in a very very successful way. Uh, the, the biggest corner that we turned there is is the company um, had a lot of money. A lot of the money they made, they sold wheelchair tires. They sold much more conventional stuff that you're selling millions of for lots and lots of money. Yeah. So the BMX aspect of that company was relatively small, but it was growing quickly, and. You know, Brian had done a fantastic job cultivating it, and then we just kind of picked up where he left off, but then also added some really different elements to it. We had access and, and close friendships with most of the cool rider-owned brands at the time. Okay, which so, is they didn't have that before you got there, so they needed basically you were the you were the connector. Yeah, well, there was a, there was a company called Seventies in in England that ha, that had done that type a distribution company in in England called the Seventies, and and what they had done is they had taken the rider-owned brands from England and America and pulled them into this kind of one-stop distribution. Yeah. So now all the shops could get this cool, small, curated stuff that they couldn't get before. So I took this lead from them and said, there's really no one in America doing that. And we did that. Yeah. So I, I brought in these tiny brands that had the best products, the best design work, by far the best teams, actual integrity, you know, <laughs> all, all, the, all this stuff. And we just, we just ran it wide open. Um, I, w- I would... You know they were so small, but I would I would write 
fake invoices um, to get them prepaid for gigantic orders of stuff and basically just say, no, don't fuck me on yeah, this because this, yeah. this is real. Yeah. You know? but, but if they didn't, then it all sold. Everybody made money. And the company was big enough that they didn't know here nor there whether yeah. you know, they had prepaid or postpaid. And so we, we really helped grow these small, awesome brands by being, by being a little bit sneaky and yeah. just kind of doing what needed to be done. Yeah, you started investing in others in, yeah, a, lot, in and, a way, and, and betting the, on them. And the teams, the teams, you know, we would put people on the team and pay them, and, and sometimes people would come up short. So, you know, there were sneaky ways to run around that too. If, if, I, if I wanted a, a photo contingency for somebody that needed to get someplace and didn't have the money to get there, I would take a photo of someone else out of a magazine that had a helmet on and put a sticker on it and say it was them and then get them paid their 400 bucks or whatever. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't stealing because what they were offering to the company was this enormous amount of growth. Yeah, this value, this value and potential. And, and, and this perceived realness. You know, yeah. the, the company itself was not a, was not a, a good company. Um, but but the perception was reality, and, and I got a lot of I got a lot of acrimony for that too. P people that were diehard, made in the USA, um, you know, kind of BMX stalwarts, really started targeting me and like fucking with me a lot, because you know it was almost like they were accusing me of of making it seem like this company was mine, as opposed to like these kind of these kind of phantom owners, you know, yeah, whatever. Um, and I ended up getting they ended up like maligning me for that. So what I kept feeling like was I'm just, I'm getting maligned for doing a really good job. I've never said this brand is mine. I've just made it personal because it's important to me and it's important to these other riders and it's paying a lot of people and it's making a lot of really good people a lot of money. Yeah. Well, but I ended up taking, I ended up taking the brunt of that in some real unusual ways. Mike Tyson. <laughs> Mike Tyson. When you're favored by God, <clears throat> you're also favored by the devil. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and. I mean, to a much lower degree, that's, that's where we were. The, the, the companies were going great. The, 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 the parts company itself was excelling. It had an excellent team. We had a great engineer. The parts were great. But then the distribution company that now housed all these really interesting brands was killing it. Um, I was running BMX contests at the time. Um, funny enough, we called them La Revolution. <laughs> um, it's so over there. Yeah, it's over, yeah, I saw it. <laughs> we were on it last night. I think yeah. we almost ate tacos there. Um, but but we were running these these BMX contests that were also unusual. Yeah. You know, B, BMX contests for a while were were really interesting and cool. Um, and then X Games came, and it was kind of it was still really cool, but it was just like commercialized a little bit and and hard to get to and whatever. We did these contests at skate parks. Um, I announced them, and the way that we ran them was this jam format. So four riders would run at once to whatever was on my iPod. Yeah. And I would announce it, you know? And it was, it was, it was a melee. It felt like a hardcore show had erupted in a skate park. That's fucking wild. And, and it, was, it was really well received and, and really some of the fondest memories of my life. I ended up going to England a couple of times to announce contests over there. It would be hard to pick a single favorite, but, but one of them for sure was... They had put up the ramps for the skate park in this old hockey rink. Oh, okay, okay. And so you you come in and it's this this circled off with ramps in the middle and all these maniacs around the entire thing, Wait, and surrounded like a that's like it. coliseum. That's exactly it. Wow. And, and it's it's me with an iPod and a microphone navigating this contest with this jam format, you know. And and it was it was 
it was strikingly memorable. What, 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 what were you putting on? What were you? What would you? What was? It, what, what was your playlist? It was the playlist, and it was very similar to what the playlist is now. You know, it'd be side by side and Slapshot and Youth of Today and Chromags and and whatever the case is, and you know, whatever was whatever was good and it fast. Was and it, it was you. It was me. You. Yeah, and uh, you know, <laughs> something funny. Uh, I hadn't thought about this in a long time. A couple of kids from that contest in England uh, that were that were that liked what we did and, and were looking at what we were up to. They, they brewed beer. So they brought this one tub of beer, like a keg or whatever, yeah. and um, <laughs> they had called it Greg Walsh Bitter Beer. <laughs> and they had this like logo painted on the side of this, this keg. Um, I remember that. I had a photo of it at one point, but I don't have it now. But, but, the, but the contest was just another way to kind of endear us to the community and, and re-contribute. Yeah. We, we, we wanted contests to be accessible to amateurs and professionals, reasonable money, and we wanted them to get notoriety from it. Yeah. So we're just folding everything together that we liked. Yeah. Pro props would come and cover them. It would make tremendous sections in props. You were doing the same thing you did when you were playing in a band, uh, yeah. setting up some of these shows to make it, you know. That's exactly right. That's exactly the same thing you were doing, except now when the... The, ma the magazines would come, shoot photos. You know, um, you know run, we're running back quite a ways here, and it's not like I'm sitting around holding this up for my friends, but one, one of the magazine covers said that the con a contest we had run was the best contest ever, you know, and... and it's cool, yeah. It, 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 it's it's uh, being able to be a part of and or, you know, participate in a, in an era, in a memory, like I, I imagine there's a bunch of people that that was their, that was their era. Yeah. That, that, that was what, that's their youth. They remember back on that moment fondly and... I still hear from them. Crazy you know, madman with an iPod in the background yeah. egging them on. I mean, they, they, you know, they still reach out. You know, the, the more familiar we get with the Internet, yeah. you know, they're around. You know, there, there are people that have come and found us for, for fitness. There are people that still do BMX and, and find us from that. It's, it's so being out there in California and being a part of this thing, this, this BMX accessible street community. And like, what are you doing, though? Like, yeah, I mean it's California. I when I went through my my immigration process, I did two years in California, living there, and it's surprising how many people gravitate to California that are all exponents in their own weird communities and basically migrate there. It's like who like you you start meeting yeah people, different people from different backgrounds that like who, like what was it like in that, it was, in that era? It was I mean it was an import market that's for sure. Yeah. Um, the BMX thing took a lot of my time. It was going well until it didn't, and we can get into that. Um, but prior to leaving New York, I had started training some martial arts, and and um, like what, what were you <laughs> what were you training? I had started training Aikido not long before I left New Dude. York. And and <laughs> hold, hold on, you started training Aikido. Listen, you, you, so, this, hold on, I got I you rarely. Really surprised and shocked me. Now that's pretty good. That's a pretty good. Did you wear the uniform? So there's a reason. <laughs> you wore the uniform. Listen, man. Dude, I want to know if you wore the uniform. Of course right? I did. So so, but here's the deal. It's great. It's great. It's fine. It was what it was what I could afford, it and was, it was it, near me. It, it's great. I know we all have to start somewhere. You know? And and I I do. I look back at it and I think, okay, if I'm looking at what I had done before, you know what I mean? Like yeah. I I. I a kid threatened my brother. I hit him with a pool stick, threw him down the stairs, and beat him with a cue ball in the sock. 
You know, is that a martial art? I don't know. Yeah, I think the I think for me, mar, the martial art is the application, success, successful app, successful application. That's where the art is. And but, so we, I'd been in enough physical trouble where I kind of had some sensibilities for that. I wasn't good at it. Yeah. Um, and then, Aikido was local. It was cheapish. Um, and I, I would I would say before I say I trained there, I'm not saying I was Steven Seagal about it, but no. I, I had been for probably three months, probably three classes a week. Yeah. And what I had started realizing immediately is it, it was almost feeder-based. Like, they tell you exactly what to do. Yeah. You do it. And it feels, you know. And I started being like, well, the tumbling aspect of it was cool. That, that yeah, I, falling gra- and I gravitated ro- Falling and rolling, that. I learned that from ju- judo myself. <laughs> and it's great. It's amazing. Yep. It, 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 it feels good, you and, know. And think about what I was doing. I'm falling down for a living at the time. So you have to be very you know, good at it. So, so maybe not for a living, but definitely as a yeah, hobby. Yeah. So learning how to tumble was awesome. Learning any type of conceptual stuff was awesome. Wrist locks are awesome. Um, but the reality is I knew that that was what I wanted to do, but not how I wanted to do it. Yeah. Um, so as, as soon as I got to California, um, again, cost and access was a big deal to me. I knew there was a million places around, but I didn't have $200 a month. Um, what, what, what gyms were around that you were like, oh, like what was around well, you that you were like, hmm, I, I mean, wish. Southern California at the time, you had, you had your pick. Yeah. Um, I needed something close because I didn't have a lot of time. And um, I needed something reasonable because at the time when I first got out there, I, I wasn't making money. Um, I was pleased with what I was making, but it, it wasn't going to let me pay 250 a month for jujitsu. Yeah. I started taking Kempo Karate in North Long Beach. And it was awesome. It was, it was, it was a very good Kempo gym um, uh, run by a, an honorable man and his wife. And, and then my instructor, uh, Carlos Macias. Oh, fucker. What? Um, what? <laughs> I haven't thought about him in a while. Okay. He, uh, he helped me figure it all out. He, he, knew, that, he knew that karate was going to be a gateway drug for me. You know, because yeah. we had talked about what I had done as a kid and yeah, he, what, what I needed. And, he saw you know. violence. He saw violence in your background, just not focus, I guess. Yeah. So of course he helped me with karate. It was good. Karate was great. I competed a couple times. It was fun, but but he was in his beginning of his jujitsu journey. Also, he had just gotten a blue belt from from a, a place in Huntington Beach, and so we would sneak up to the upstairs private training room and start grappling. So this is right now. This is probably two thousand one. This is early for that. Yeah. And, and, and so I was training Kempo, and then two to three days a week, we would go upstairs and just wrestle, and he would basically just put on me what he had been put on the week before. Yeah. And so, you know, you, you'd just learn all different manner of everything, and I started realizing the value of seaming it together, but I also started realizing what holes in the boat I had had you know, standing up and having kind of a medium cadence in a, in a point fighting type, type of thing is, is different than this strong young man that was a black belt, like a legitimate black belt in Kempo and now a blue belt in Jiu-Jitsu smashing me. Yeah. I started realizing there were a lot Dim- of... The dimensions, the, the, this, this, this fight thing has dimensions to it. I mean, it's, it's easy to say and it's something people say all the time, but there's levels to things and... and the first time someone has held you on the ground against your will, you understand that. Yeah. Um, one of the things I had to figure out with grappling immediately is, is, that, is that I had a, a very real version of fighting as my perception of, of violence. 
and that that I, I had to adapt to that. Like I, I I remember at first being like like that that almost expected panic. Like like is this really gonna? Am I gonna be injured here? Is, yeah. You know because the things that had had gone down were sketchy, not not you're, super positive. You're ta- you're basically you're describing PTSD manifesting itself during moving around and training and like the aversion to some of that or and or like some of the stuff behind like maybe like figure it out because you you immediately respect someone that's trying to help you get better yeah but it's but it was very hard to cross that line between okay well this person is is hurting me to help me you know that yeah you're like the hand that injures is the tie that binds yeah and and it, it took me a minute to sort through all that yeah um so the fact that i got to do that privately with somebody who understood a me a little bit, it was it it's was such a gift, you know. Like he he he's uh, it's such a gift, yeah. That you got that yeah, private therapy session with somebody, basically yeah. physical yeah. therapy session with somebody. Yeah, it's, it's a gift. The item I brought to speak with you about, if I didn't, if I if I had checked a bag, I might have brought a different one. But the, but the one that I brought is is related to him. Um, and so the the, the Com- combat sports started basically being started creeping up on you, you know. Yeah, and also. What are you learning about yourself grappling, like your strength-wise, your conditioning? Like, is that right. becoming a, more and more apparently like, oh. A- absolutely. So, so I was really good at holding on to things because for, yeah, I had held on to things. You know, yeah. BMX, you, you get strong in weird ways. Your shoulders are strong. Your legs are strong. Your grip is strong. You're banged up all the time. So it's like my shins are constantly cut. There's bruises on my knees. Everything hurts. Yeah. But it does build certain physical attributes. Yeah, you're, you're, you, you have strength related to an activity. Yeah, yeah. And it transfers to other activities. But to me, I had to really kind of figure out some stuff. Um, and, I, and I trained with them for a while. Um, I trained privately with Carlos more. He was fantastic. And then during a, a riding trip around Long Beach, I was just looking for stuff to ride. Um, I found my gym. Um, I, in 2002, I was riding around, uh, maybe beginning of 2003, I was riding around North Long Beach and um, saw a little sign on a weird door in a little, in a little office park and you know, said integrated martial arts, you know, Muay, Muay Thai, combat submission wrestling, Kali. And, and I just went back when they were open and, and you know, not to, not to mystify it, but I was there every single day. Uh, until I moved back to New York in what, what May got, of 2008. What, what got you? What what got you about it? Like, what was what, what aspect of it that did it get? The, the, the fact that it, all of these disciplines were in one place and they were like figuring things out. I'd already been watching the UFC. Oh, so, yeah. so so the reality is, at that point, you you knew what was out there. I didn't know how close it was to me. I didn't know it was accessible to me. Yeah, but it, it was. Yeah, you know? this this is early 2000s. Like even here. All we had was Valetudo and like people that had pieces of it. They were trying to figure it out. We were. This is California. This is the people are there figuring this stuff out. So, so 2003, it had begun to it, it had begun to flourish. I think a little bit. Yeah. And and my instructors, uh, Travis Downing and, and Joe Pena, primarily, um, were just these lifelong martial artists that were just dedicated to the to 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 the hybridized not bastardized concept that we now apply with all of our training yeah you know they, they didn't they weren't larping their way through jujitsu in order to get to kickboxing yeah. and and they weren't bastardizing kali in order to move back towards a grappling art you know they were combining it all in these really fascinating accurate ways yeah joe joey was um had trained in japan in judo for many years when he was a kid and he was just this 
calm, cool dude that immediately, I think, noticed my level of dedication and, and, and kind of just helped me become this, his, this product of his system. Yeah. You know, Tra Travis had been in the military when he was younger and had been training martial arts his whole life. And he was just this super kind, total badass. And, and it's what I needed. It's, it's, it was the perfect place for me. It was I, a perfect environment of like-minded people as far as your, I mean, did you have a sense that you were, you found this new, this new thing? Like, yeah. like you yeah. found BMX, you found hardcore. Yeah. And now you found combat arts. But the, the, we keep coming back to the honesty aspect of these places that you, you, you know, there's an honesty in BMX because the gravity doesn't lie. There, there, was, there was for me. As an industry, that changed course. Yeah. We can talk about that yeah. if you'd like. But, but with, with, with martial arts, I, I knew martial arts was something I wanted to do, but I, I didn't yet feel that I had found the one. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't the one is the answer. Yeah. But it was the place. It was the place. You know, I mean, I... I you know, I, I believe they knew this, but I mean, I walked in there and there's no way I was walking out. You know, it, it, it was, it ended up being uh, early days CrossFit, CrossFit Long Beach. Um, we were like affiliate 38 or 48 or 27 or who gives a shit, but early. Um, and so then that was, that was how it all began to hybridize. Did, did, like, were you noticing, I mean, before this, doing BMX and doing all these things, you weren't, you weren't training conditioning your body to do an activity like BMX. You were tr conditioning yourself through doing it. That's right, yeah. And now you're in a yeah. discipline where I could probably be better or more strong at this, and I should... 100%. Is that where that... Mo mobility, different positional stuff. Um, sure, I could pedal a bike real fast in a straight line, but that's different when someone's punching you in the face, yeah. pushing, pushing you around. Yeah. Um, and, and so the, the hybridization of it all really made a lot of sense to me and, and, you know, maybe, maybe pulling the curtain back a little too much, but, but, you know, when, when Carlos gave me the book of the five rings, um, it, it really kind of opened my eyes to the fact that everything is everything yeah, and that everything is a martial art and that you can really kind of weaponize anything. And, and when I moved into this new gym situation, and it had a, a fledgling kind of strength and conditioning component along with these kind of hybridized martial arts. I mean, it was just, and they, they were fantastic about it too because they were these critical thinkers in these really interesting ways. We didn't do box stock CrossFit more than maybe a year of my entire time there because our purpose wasn't being the best at weightlifting. Yeah. Our purpose was staying durable. For me, I was riding BMX at the time. I was training martial arts a lot. I was doing strength and conditioning. I was shot all the time. Yeah, if I if I had been doing box stock as programmed CrossFit, I would be I would be I would have died. I don't know. I would have, I would have lost both arms. You know, I'd, I'd be a I'd be a quadruple amputee. Yeah. I mean, it's it's it wasn't the kind of thing that made any sense, and they saw it. Yeah. Um. You know, it, it was a vehicle, not a destination. Our our goal was to be better at fighting and life and, and preparedness for whatever. Being we able to doing, fall you know? correctly, being able to push through, being able to fix injury. Yeah being that is this where that's exactly it and i mean even at the time i mean i had already i mean geez man for the road fools trip my wrist was broken so it was the second time i had broken my wrist i took the cast off and duct tape it and went on the, on the road fools trip because what you get you get a you know 
you get a golden ticket, man. You cash that thing in. Yeah. You, you know, what, what am I going to do? Sit home because my wrist is hurt? No. You know? And, and so there was already navigational stuff that had to start getting thought out. I couldn't really front rack a barbell. So that's when we started adapting heavier kettlebell lifting stuff, figuring out ways to, to elicit the response and the results that we needed. Wow. You know, the, the, front, the front squat wasn't the point. Yeah. Right? It was what the front squat elicited. Front-loaded weight bracing, accuracy, all this type of stuff. I didn't, I didn't articulate it or really understand it as well at the but time. That, but that's, that's that, but that was it. Yeah. You, you go into this realm of the body, basically you start kind of focusing on the realm of the body and of the mind, because these, these two are linked in a very, these are, these are inseparable in a lot of ways, but I imagine being around people like that who are purposely training their bodies for a violent purpose, which, you know, a lot of people will say, well, violent, that's very much in our nature. I mean, both of our eyes are in front of our heads. We're predators. So if you don't have that, if you're not expressing that in any way, shape, or form in your life, you're neutered in a way or you're, you're bottled, I guess. So you're, you're around these savages. You know, when I say savages, not in a disparaging kind of like, but you're basically no. around... They're animals. I mean, like J Travis and Joey were these understated people, and I'm not trying to mystify them, but like th they were high level instructors in, in what I believe were some of the most esteemed arts and gyms and practitioners. I mean, they, they, were, they were Thai boxing under Arjun Chai, who was in Dan and Asano's place. They were, they were CSW with Eric Paulson. They were, they were belted under Kleber for jiu-jitsu. Joey had trained judo in Japan to the point where, like, when he grabbed you, it was, it was terrifying. Yeah. You know, they were Sayakali. Uh, they were Savat, you know, and, and they were just hybridizing these things in these fascinating ways. We just wanted to know how to fight. Yeah. And, and that's what they put on me, you know. And, and the gym was small, and there was, there was enough people there to make it a, a viable business. But it was a very small crew that was, like, really, really there. Yeah. You know, and I was just, I was. And we're at the ground floor of that. And, and, what, you, and what you said is 100% true. It was, it was also, so <laughs> BMX was going south at the yeah. time for me. It, it, was, it was catharsis at a time where if I didn't have that, it, it would have been, uh, it would have been, been lost. a real problem. You I would have been uh, lost. The, the, the bike company that I moved out there for um, had gone so well that it had become a problem. Um, like, I, I was getting, I was, you know, one, one of the, one of the, some, uh, a company and man that I looked up to when I was a kid um, dedicated a page in a catalog to a fake interview with me, just messing with me, making fun of me for my ideals, making fun of me for not drinking, um, you know, personal stuff, just, just totally just, just po poking fun at me in a very public way. I addressed him about it at a trade show, and, and like most people like that do, he stood there like a total... yeah. Fucking coward. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, dis distance makes us brave. But but that's what happened, and and that took that took more wind out of my sails than I'd like to admit. But when when you get people who you've looked up to um, maligning you when you think you were just doing a good job, I, I understand that. For me, for me, it's like a, a Joe Rogan told me this long ago, and he he says it a lot. Don't read the comment section. Yeah. And it's not about. It's not yeah. about it's not about uh, I'm too weak in the mind that I'm that I'm going to focalize on this hateful thing that this rando dude says. Sometimes it's about not opening ourselves up to something like that coming from somebody like that. That's right. 
And, he, and in this position, I was guilty of that for sure. And, and honestly, and if I'm, if I'm being totally honest, my, my real response to that um, would have been harming that dude um, because that was a personal affront on me that, that was unnecessary and unprovoked. And, and, and so it was, it was almost me learning a little bit about myself here too, you know, like, okay, what, what would the me three years ago would, yeah. would have done? You know? Th that's based, did you take that as a cue or like, did you basically say, this is, this is my time to kind of like, well, it was, it was one of, it was one of two tipping points. And, and the next one was someone else that I'd looked up to since, since I was younger, really high level professional BMX guy. Um, we were selling his brand at the distribution company. Um, it was an okay brand. He had a really good team because he was a very big name guy and, and all this kind of stuff. But the brand just wasn't very good. Uh, it looked kind of weird compared to the other stuff. And, and it sold what it sold. But if they had risen to the full occasion, we would have never gotten into this issue. But if something doesn't sell that well, you don't order more of it. Right? Yeah. It's like commerce or something. Yeah. So <laughs> we had pumped the brakes on what we were doing with his brand because it wasn't very good. And he took it super, super personally. Personal. And, yeah. and he used his star power with the owner of the company, who was a huge fan of his, and, you know, took a... They a, needed a bad guy. Took a joke that I had made in a, in a fun video of me going through my day. Um, I was well known for working my ass off. And I made a joke in this video about, like, oh, let's answer the phone today, you know, or, or let's see what idiot made, sent me an email today. Yeah. Joking because I was attentive and, and really pretty religious about like taking care of anybody I could. And he turned it into kind of a real thing. Well, Greg is clearly not taking his job seriously and all this kind of stuff. And, and it led to this kind of impasse. And during that same period of time, um, there, was, <laughs> there was a kid that worked there. Um, there was a good friend of mine and he was a, he was a very troubled dude. And we'd, we'd, we'd helped him out of trouble before. And when you say trouble, though, he was, was he uh, quiet? Like, was he, he would, traumatized? Like, what, he, was, what? he was attractive, boisterous, the most helpful person you'd ever know. Anytime I'd get stuck at a different airport or they'd bounce me around, he'd be the first one there. He was, he was a wonderful person. With a sad, with, sadness? With, yeah. And um, he drank, you know, and, and he got caught for it a couple times. And... We had kept him because he was great. Everyone loved him. Everyone knew he had his demons. But eventually, the, the company, the people that ran this company didn't give a shit about anything. And, and what it really boiled down to is, is someone within there said something they shouldn't have. And um, they told me to fire this kid. And, and I, I <laughs> this might be the only time outside of one other dishonorable thing that I've done. Um, that I did something I knew I shouldn't have done. And, and uh, so I fired him on a Friday and, and he killed himself over that weekend. Fuck. And um, for me, that combined with the fact that, that trying to do nothing but as, as best a job as I could was getting me maligned by these folks that I'd looked up to and that I'd made money for and all this kind of stuff. I, I just, it, it, it took the wind out of my sails to the point where I knew I needed to leave that situation, but it made me almost just want to leave BMX entirely. Yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How can you? I mean, I couldn't reconcile it. You yeah, know? And, and, yeah. Well, so I still can't. 
I still can't reconcile it, you know. Yeah. And, and and of course, like we both know as well as anyone that that there is there is a series of dots that connects the line. Yeah. But I didn't ever want to be the last dot. No, no. You know, and and so he he, he leaves, and I'm thinking I knew he had problems, you know. I'd pulled a fucking shotgun out of his mouth another time uh, a year or so prior to that. And, and, but we had it, you know, like he was, he was a positive minded person that had some darkness and, and this, he was so good at his job. Like he was just, a, he was like a preternatural salesman. He was, he was charismatic. He wasn't salesy in, in a sense of being dishonest. He was just great he, at his job. He had purpose there and he had purpose there and it was taken away. It, it just, it just wasn't looked at for what it was. You know, it was, they, they were looking at a very singular piece of a, of a very cool, important puzzle. And I knew that that was a mistake. And, and I don't, I don't, I can't really say I would be making it up if I said I knew what I was thinking at the time, but I knew it was wrong. Um, and I shouldn't, and I shouldn't have done it. You almost have those moments where you know exactly what you're, it's, it's, uh, it's like uh, driving into a wall without brakes. I mean, you, you just know it's leading to something, but you can't stop it sometimes. Yeah. And yep. the, 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 the regret aspect of it, man. I, I, if, if anything, I, that... It, it doesn't matter whatever anybody tells you about the responsibility of that. We, we will always own it because that's who we are. It, it's, uh, it informs every decision I make. Yeah. I never leave a conversation unread. You know, some stranger gets a hold of me on the internet, which I'm sure happens to you more, but happens to me a lot. Takes something that you've written or something you've said and, and uses it to help them out of some dark stuff. I mean, there's no price that can be put on that. It, it's yeah. like the most important gift we can give. And, and you don't realize how important that gift is until something like this happens. Something like this goes down and you start realizing how much your words matter. Yeah. Um, and I remember that conversation when we did that. I, di I did it in a way that was in no way disrespectful to him, but that might have been worse. Yeah, because, you know, because he, he knew cold. He knew I loved him. And, and so he, he, he probably felt like I was... I was cold. Yeah, I had... I had uh, Detached. You know, I had, I, had, I had turned into the man, you know? And, oh. and uh, so I knew I needed to leave that company. Um, the situation with this other guy who was trying to make me out as a as a lazy bum, not paying attention to his brand, you had to was, you that had was to the icing on the cake. It was contentious when I left. Um, uh, the the only and I mean it's not a positive by any means, but but the only pat on the back I got is that most of the team left with me. A lot of the brands that I had brought into the distribution left immediately, which was weighty, because that took immediate massive amounts of money out of their pocket. Yeah. Um, so I pivoted and it was a huge mistake in hindsight, but it was an important one at the time. We started our own parts company called Coalition. To this day, and, and this is probably as far out of my humility lane as I get, it was the best design of any brand that has ever been in BMX. Yeah. Our art director, uh, this kid Aaron, was a, was a supernatural artist. He was just put on this earth to make awesome art. You know, he, 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 made, he made people like, you know, Shepard Ferry and all these cats that did all this stuff look like they were, you know, playing tiddlywinks. And he was just a troubled dude that never got his, his full potential. But we got to work with him with Hell on Earth. We got to work with him with, with all the marketing for, the, for the, the hardcore shows. We got to work with him with marketing for the BMX contests. And then he was the driving force behind Coalition. 
and the brand was beautiful. But what I found out is I was good at running really small brands with my own money. Yeah. Really big brands with other people's money. Yeah. And I was really, really bad at running medium-sized brands with my own money. <laughs> and it, it went well until it didn't go well. Yeah. We had a great team. And it was just, it was, a, it, was a, it was a necessary response that if I had taken three more months to think it out, I probably wouldn't have made. Um, and then, so really, my end, my end in the BMX industry was, was you know, 2007 or so. Um, the, the, the brand coalition went on. We had our friend um, from another distribution company, awesome, awesome dude, still saw a lot of value in the brand. I basically just said, here you go. This is yours, you know? Um, we helped him with it. In no way was I like, we're out, yeah. you know? But yeah, you, you transferred you, you, you transferred something over. And I didn't sell it, you know? Yeah. So it's like where, where I'm just, you know, traditionally and, and seemingly like pathologically irresponsible with businesses, I didn't sell it to him. Yeah. You know, um, I, I knew that I couldn't do honor by what it what, what we had built and, and I didn't want it to die. And, and that you was it. it over. But that was for me, that was it. I, I, I didn't want to work in BMX anymore because I still loved it. I still love riding. I still love riding. Yeah. You know, watching watching the evolution of BMX is is shocking to me because I was there for that early iterations of of it starting out. Yeah. You know, it's, it's going from people doing, you know, tricks on this floor right here yeah. in, in, you know, leather pants. To, to people in, in, you know, baggy clothes from the dollar store jumping down handrails and, and, you know, winter hats riding in the middle of the night running from the cops, you know, and, and now people doing, you know, tail whips off of roofs into banks in the L.A. River. You know, it's, it's, <laughs> it's watching wild. that evolution is insane, but I, I didn't want to watch it from the inside yeah. anymore. You, you, so you, you uh, it seems like all these... From the you know from you being a kid lacrosse you jump to music you jump to the BMX like it seems like you didn't have something else to jump to at this point like not well, nothing clear martial arts and strength and conditioning that's that's but but as far as like I'm going to this is what I'm going to make a living out of yeah I so I, I at the time I hadn't even thought yet about I'm going to monetize this yeah I was just thinking I was like, just thinking my whole life has been this contentiousness. You know, I'm, I'm, putting a, I'm putting a name and a face to this contentiousness by putting it into a martial practice. And honestly, if I didn't have that outlet, if I didn't have that catharsis, when the BMX stuff shook out, I would have been a real mess. Yeah. Um, and they shook out around the same time, like, like full, full swing at, a, at my gym in, in Long Beach was when the other stuff started really tapering off and getting super, super messy. And I was just able to double down on that. And I started teaching um, uh, strength and conditioning um, in 2004, 2003, 2004, privately, just a couple private clients, um, challenging ones. Yeah. One of the first, one of the first kids uh, that I had to train um, had a really crazy skin condition. So he essentially had to wear a sauna suit to train in. So there were there were limitations there from a conditioning standpoint and mobility standpoint. So even early on, I mean, I, you, I had you had to figure things. We had out. to pivot, man. We had to figure it out. This dude's not trying to do CrossFit. You yeah. know, he's trying to stay healthy enough to not you know have a heart attack at thirty or whatever. And um, and then I started teaching some some class based strength and conditioning stuff. Um, I found out I was okay at that. I didn't I didn't have a problem leading a room, even though it's still to this day doesn't feel like my 
my real forte. It doesn't That's feel like a... Completely natural seeing in front of you like a shaman leading a ceremony. You're fine. You're doing well. Doesn't ever, it doesn't ever feel like my natural constitution to it's be in front. Exa- you know? It's exactly where you need to be. So, like when I've seen, when I've witnessed you in front, I'm like, yeah, yeah yep, makes sense. I, uh, now, I, well, I, you're, well, you're going through this process of learning how to be a conditioning, a strength and conditioning coach. Are you, are you reading? Are you learning? Are you pulling information? Like, is somebody mentoring you on this process? Or are you doing the Musashi thing again? Everywhere in both, though. You know, so, so we were already even in uncharted territory because there was weightlifting and there was gymnastics and there was CrossFit. And then there was conventional stuff. Yeah, and you were and in so the realm of... We were saying, well, we don't want to be conventional weightlifters, not because we don't like them, but it's just not what we're doing. Yeah. Um, Gymnastics is awesome, and we borrow we borrowed accurately from gymnastics. Of course, everyone does. Yeah. And then there was CrossFit, which is a good name for the gym because it's going to bring people in the door. But from a physical standpoint, we're going to start turning different dials because what they're doing is not fitting what we need. Yeah. Um, that made us a little bit outcasted within the CrossFit thing. Um, that that was extremely regimented and almost cultish, even at that point. And so, you know, so, so like for people that are not aware, like we're, we're going there, but like, so where are you going with it? Like what, yeah, where are you going with it? What I started thinking about is, is how can we make people better at anything that isn't training itself? So we wanted people to be accurate in, in everything in training, of course, because that's the vehicle. But just like I said, and it's such a simple thing to think about is we want us to be better at fighting. Yeah. If we were if we were three quarters in the bag every single day, how are we going to get better at fighting? We're not going to have enough in the tank to train jujitsu or to train kickboxing properly or something like that. You know, the, the hour long kickboxing classes that we had were tremendously difficult. Yeah, you're doing drills, you're holding tie pads, you're hitting tie pads, you're jumping rope, you're doing a little bit of sparring, and and it was nothing abnormal or out of the ordinary, but it was extremely difficult as it should have been. Yeah, a lot of people there were training to compete. Some of them were absolutely excellent. Some of them were visiting for other, from other gyms because Travis and Joey were known for having very interesting methods of conveying information, extremely effective methods of conveying they run, information. They were running a laboratory there, and people wanted to get in on that, I guess. That's what it felt like. Yeah. And so, so it, was, it was both. It was we were looking at CrossFit, we were looking at these other people, and, and a lot of wonderful things came from CrossFit, but... We also knew that there were going to be other stones to turn that they weren't going to offer to us. Yeah. So you, you, one thing I noticed about your work and like when, how, how it's, you go like from how you, like where your feet are placed under you to how you move and the actions you take and what is efficient and what, what is the most efficient way just to stand basically as a basic level thing. Yeah. And, or how to throw something, or how to lift something. But it, it's only at the end of some of these motions that you can see, oh, it's the application to be able to throw somebody over your shoulder so they, yeah. or to yeah. be able to punch somebody in front of you. Well, the, the, the martial intent, um, uh, the, the transferable concepts, a lot of those are things that, that we kind of championed, we, we kind of concepted. Um, the idea of high-level accuracy and movement came from the competition aspects of something like weightlifting or gymnastics. Yeah. If you're watching those people, 
they, it, you, you're talking about deadlift, bench press, squat. A competitive weightlifter will obsess over details of those movements precision. forever. It's precision. You know, Olympic lifting, same thing. The, yeah. the iterations of something like a clean or a clean and jerk are practiced by some people that, I, I mean, I had access to working with wonderful people, Sean Waxman, a bunch of other excellent, excellent people that, that to this day obsess over micro details to make the finest people in the world. I'm thinking so th if what I want to create is a generalist that is so talented and versatile that they can transfer this skill and capacity to anything, why would I want any less than that amount of detail? That's amazing. That's amazing. So, that's amazing so it's like moment. taking, okay, what's going to happen at the highest levels of weightlifting? Well, why would I bastardize that? Look at these monsters. Gymnastics, look what, they're, look what they're doing. It's superhuman. Why would I change anything like that? We just have to add to that already excellent soup. And so that's where it started thinking about, like, as a martial art itself. And honestly, man, I'll tell you that, that the book of five rings that Carlos gave me, all highlighted and ripped up and, and, and messed up, yeah. That, that's what that's what that's, that's what gave me the idea and and gave me the permission to make everything the same. Yeah. It's you a know? common theme with people on this podcast. That book, it, it's just fondness for no particular weapon. Yeah, you know, you, you know, I'm I'm gonna make everything everything, and and I'm not gonna do it in some clumsy ass way. I'm I'm gonna do it in a way that that will translate to the highest level of itself, or will translate to the highest level of whatever is in its periphery. Yeah, you know. So I mean, we've we've optimized high-level weightlifters yeah. with strategies that we've used to help very, very beginners learn how to move properly. And, and, and as you're going through the process of, like, figuring some of these things out, because, you, again, you are in a territory or we're in a territory, combat, combat sports are coming up, uh, people training with a purpose or an intent, which is a professional athlete, mixed martial art individual. They're, it's, it's, a new, it's new ground. It's new ground, realistically, like, you know, hardcore training back in the 80s and stuff like that for martial arts was whatever it was. Different, but not, different. This is a different era, different, different place. Uh, are you writing some of this down? Is, are there notebooks? Like, yeah. What's going on as far as, like, are you collecting this? Like, how is, how's that process going for you as well? I mean, th that's exactly it. You know, it was, it was focus group live and practice mostly on myself. And then, and then notes, you know, phrasing notes movement notes. Um, again, my instructors were great. They made us write little training programs. Did they make any sense? Who knows? Uh, when I would go train with someone else, um, I got invited to the first ever CrossFit kettlebell certification in San Diego with Jeff Martone. And uh, he's a tremendous dude, excellent instructor. Um, and, you know, he would never remember this and, and probably didn't care even at the moment. But I gave him the first kettlebell program I wrote. And I said, hey, man, would you mind looking at this for a minute? Like, I just want to see, like, if I'm on to something here. And, and, you know, I did well at that certification because I'd already been lifting kettlebells well for a while. And, and that was kind of just the, that was the way that we did it. I, I, didn't, I didn't think I knew everything, but I knew at that point even I didn't know nothing. Yeah. Because I was seeing it. You yeah. Know, we, were, we were tinkerers even then. And, and uh, I knew that there was really, there was no end to that evolutionary process because even with my short duration of training in martial arts, I had already seen that, like, there's no end to this. And, and while you're going through this process and looking at these kettlebells, because uh, I've never seen somebody talk so much shit about kettlebell designs than you. But it's great, though. I, I love it. It's not a negative thing. I appreciate when somebody can look at something that's bullshit right there. Uh, you're going through this process of learning about these kettlebells and uh, using them in, in, in tools and training. 
is this when you start bumping into like this doesn't this doesn't make any sense let me see if i can make it better you're tinkering with with the you're tinkering with how you train people you're tink, you're you're taking some things from other disciplines but also i imagine the tools that you're using or that you would want to use because you're learning how to use a kettlebell for example yeah they're not exactly what you wanted like can you tell them about, talk, talk about a little bit about like some of the first things you start tinkering about when it comes to some of these tools and, and this conversation was so much fun hearing you talk about knives yesterday and and it's 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 the same there was a few things that were perfect but there were a multitude of things that weren't yeah and and we had started figuring out why you know and, and part of it is that we had started prioritizing heavier kettlebell lifts to complement and supplement the other heavy lifts Okay. Most people were using kettlebells in a relatively singular way. There were a couple people, Mike Mahler's one of them. I trained with him a couple times. Awesome dude, super talented, st still a total animal. And he was prioritizing heavier kettlebell lifting. Okay. Most other people weren't. The other heavy kettlebell lifting out at the time was, was either extremely esoteric, like out there, single one-off people in their yards doing wild stuff, or, or almost circus trick like stuff. Yeah, strong, old timey, strong man stuff. Where, where you're looking at people with enormous amounts of mobility and enormous amounts of skill doing things that normal people simply weren't going to do. Okay. You know, you're going to put a 60 pound kettlebell, 80 pound kettlebell in the front rack and do a one legged squat up onto a table. No, thank you though. It, it's great. Perfect. It's cool. It's cool. But, it's cool, but the reality is that's not, a, no. that's not something that's going to help a, a lot of people. But, but powerful, functional, Great, accurate. Amazing. That's what we started working towards. Yeah. And, and then when you start doing that stuff, as you know as well as anyone, you get past the shallow end, the quality of the tool, the accuracy of the tool can almost lead to the accuracy of the process. Yeah. Um, and then when it circles back, it stops mattering at all. You know? Yeah, yeah. And, and that's, what I like, that's what I like to see. I yeah. can teach anybody with anything anywhere. Yeah. And, and that came from having ideal equipment having no equipment, and then realizing that it's not really the point. Yeah. So you, so you, start, you start this process basically developing your own, I don't know what you would want to call it. It's, it's not a program because that's... It's a process. That, that, exactly. I, I was going to say you start developing your own program because I don't, I, don't think you, I don't think you have a program. I think you have a... And of course we do. So, so, and that's the thing, but it's got to be both. Yeah. So like, like we have a program. It's what runs the gym every day. Every Sunday, instructors and a handful of other selected people that are very valuable to me get the email. The email is the training week. It's the keys to the kingdom. Yeah. It's, it's the narration. It's the schemes. It's everything else. It gets tinkered with every year to make sure it's right. Yeah. And it never ends. Yeah. But the process is what builds it. Yeah, yeah. Without knowing what we're doing, we wouldn't know how to do it, and vice versa. Um, so the, the process is really the, is really the value. You st you start creating this process, then a program around this process. I mean, you're small. You're working with a few people. You're yeah. We're still in Long Beach. You're at the you time. yeah that's trying it. to figure things out. And uh, where do you where does the momentum start come coming by? As far as how hey, this is. I need to, I, this is it. Well, I, I started adding tools to the toolbox. I found the mace in 2005 through a guy in, in Southern California. Uh, um, when, the, 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 when you talk about mace, what, what's a mace? Like people yeah. don't know what that is. Like Ball, this, stick. A, 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 
a long handle. Yeah. It's and, essentially, a, and a heavy ball at the end. Or, or essentially just a handle and a lever. And a lever. For hundreds and hundreds of years, people have swung maces, and they've looked all manner of different ways. You know, Indian wrestling cultures have used maces as one of their primary development tools for hundreds and hundreds of years. The first time I saw anybody swinging around either a mace or a war club was the Iron Sheik. Remember <laughs> that guy from the, yeah. from the WWF back then? Of course. You know, you would see these monstrous people in that in that uh, realm, but the Iron Sheik would grab these two giant war clubs yeah. and swing them behind. That's the first time I ever saw those. Yep. And then he would hand them to like Hulk Hogan. None of those guys could do it. And that's the first time I saw like, huh, that's strength. It, it's a martial art. I mean, it's 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 it seamlessly adapts to something like martial arts, especially something like grappling, better than anything else ever can, ever will. Yeah, and it's been around for so so long. You you look at you look at these Indian wrestlers, and and they don't look like much, but then you watch what they do, and you can tell that they just have absolute complete control over their physicality. That's where the idea of the 360 degree model came up. Wow. Okay. Because those guys are not deadlifting. No. They're not no. squatting. You know, they're, they're plowing their wrestling field by hand with a sled drag. They're swinging maces. They're doing dumbbell push-ups, and they're wrestling. And so I'd seen maces prior to this. I didn't have access to them. And then 2005, I, I had access to them. And, and Jake Shannon was the one that put the ball on the end of the stick. And he did it with another brand that was making maces at the time. And that was relatively short-lived. We still have a couple of them at our place in Long Beach. They were urethane-coated. Um, which to us didn't, didn't work because if you hit them on something, they bounce. Yeah. And that's both fun and not fun. <laughs> if you hit them on the wrong thing, they bounce. Yeah, that's, that's, you, um, don't want, you don't want that. So once that company went off, I knew that the value of the mace was something I had barely even cracked into because of what it was doing for our small group. And so at that point, I, had, I, had this, I just had this kind of open door I realized that the plate was was really just had the first course on it. Yeah. And we started we started tinkering. How, how do you combine it? Where do you put this stuff? You know, the mace is never going to be the heaviest, so it's never going to go before the deadlift or the squat or something like that. Um, when do you use it? Why? You know, how do you use it for something other than what you would had seen it used for? Yeah. You know, and, and when I got introduced to the mace, I mean, they, he was doing a great job, but there wasn't a ton of accuracy to it. It was just do it. Yeah. Um, I'm a systems guy, I guess. Um, yeah, you, you want you want to know you want to know the purpose behind all of the components, you know? and, and and the how and the why. Yeah, and, you, and you were the first one that taught me about the concept of closing a circuit. Yeah, can yeah. you can you explain where that where that comes from? Or, sure. Or, sure. I mean, if 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 you get some supernatural mover, no injuries, yeah. no mobility limitations, anything like that, they can probably do stuff really well somewhat soft for most people that's not the case so the idea of a closed circuit is just making as much force as you can as opposed to leaving open circuits yeah if i have a sticking point someplace or something like that inattention to one corner of your body is going to let force bleed out of that corner of your body yeah and we do it all the time we watch people do it you know yeah it, it, a lot of people can squat with weight that can't air squat we we had and people we worked on this video these past few days, and we had an MMA fighter come. Yeah. And, 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 and uh, two of them uh, out of uh, the Entram gym here in Tijuana, Luis Meraz. Uh, he's, 
he's a he's a he's a mature fighter, and there was a younger guy there who uh, Sebastian, uh, cool dudes, amazing kids, great fighters. Um, that you were you know they were, they were swinging that kettlebell, but Luis specifically, his hand was relaxed and yeah. open. Yep. And you were giving him a diagnostic as he was doing it. And immediately you keyed in on the fact that he wasn't closing his circuit. And for him, it was basically this hand was... Yeah, flapping in the wind. And as soon as you told him, close that circuit, everything... It sharpened up. It sharpened yeah. up. It's it's like a it's like a secret channel to accuracy. Yeah, yeah. It's it's, like, it's for me. It's like when I watch you doing this, and you're basically seeing you. De- it's like you're recognize you. You have a computer in your hand, and you're recognizing patterns. This is off. This is off. This is off. Let me align this and this and this and this. And all of a sudden, like you've done this to me. Like, hey, don't touch my knees when you do this. Yeah, and yeah. it just changes things it, it's this process of micro adjustments that, that, that is really based on having trained a lot of people who are a real challenge early on and not having access to these 99 percent when you see challenge when you say challenge injured people um, or injured unfit uh, uh, squeamish afraid all of it all and, of it and and how is it that you're aware of these things is because you've been injured Oh. And you've been kind of like standoffish about. I mean, if 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 you if you don't know how to break it, you don't know how to build it. If you don't know how to build it, you don't know how to break it. And you broke, <laughs> I mean, all of it. You know, all of it. And and so when you when you think about building it, it's it's this it's it's like this, it's like this gift. You know, like we can take someone who otherwise really probably couldn't do stuff, and with these kind of system of micro adjustments and and just observation and experiment. But at this point now. Uh, we joke about it as adaptive non-science. Um, we can get anyone to move properly, um, no matter what. Yeah, uh, I've, 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 I've had many interactions with physical therapists and people, you know, wanting to, you know, think positive and, you know, that type of stuff. Or people that just don't have never been injured themselves in a way that drastically changes their lives. I guess. Um, I must admit that when you did an assessment on me and you were like figuring out what's wrong with me, I was skeptical because I've had I've had bad experiences with people trying to fix my bullshit, basically uh, making injuries worse, making inflammation worse, uh, focusing on uh, you need to lift this much weight and like what would be you, I, have, I don't I don't know how to stand correctly, you know that yeah. type of stuff. Yeah. Uh, but you basically just, you're like, oh, this, 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 and this, close the circuit, do this, figure this out, this will get you more mobility, and this will make you less afraid to move in this way. From a hinge to a squat, and what that changed for me, it just, it gave me, it gave me a, my core back, you know? Yeah. But I don't think you realize this, because it's hard to observe yourself. But you did it very carefully, very carefully. Um, when I say very carefully, it's like, I know this sucks because I've been there before and I had an ele- a moment with you of shared suffering 
Like, oh, this hurts, right? Yeah, I've had that shit. I know you have. I know you've had that that aspect of it. Do you think the aspect of you being broken so many times in different various physical ways basically added to your ability to do that for others? (laughs) And do you think you could have that without it? No, it, it, of course it does. It, it's, it's, it's the biggest piece of the puzzle, I think. And, and also knowing how the psychology reacts to having to think about that. You know, because I mean, when, when you're, you know, of course, I don't have to tell you, when, when, you're, when you're feeling so physically inept that you can't perform basic stuff, you don't want to do it. You, you, know, you just want to stop. And, and also survival. You know? survi- the survival instinct of an injured animal is to get the fuck away from yeah, me. Yeah, go hide. And go hide, yeah. die, die underneath a ditch or something like that. That's exactly it. I've, I've felt that, I mean, And enough, I recognize it in times. you. It was like, hey, this is what I need. Oh, th- okay, figure this out. And then, you know, <laughs> I, I took that with me and I, I figured some things out. Um, the aspect of damage and being broken, um, it's essential. It's specifically for, for this... This, this uh, project that you started, you know, it's making somebody fit so they look good in a dress is one thing, and it's a beautiful after effect, I think, for a lot of people, but that's not, that shouldn't be the end, that, that shouldn't be the sole purpose of things, I guess. And, and with, how, with how we operate, it's almost inevitable. It's inevitable. If, if you're building a 360-degree model and people are eating like any sort of adult, yeah, you're going to look relatively fantastic yeah some people are bigger some people are smaller but you know people get this kind of mystified thing about like i don't want to be too big i don't want to be bulky all this kind of stuff and it's like that's not what we do yeah. when, when you understand the system that you're applying you understand what the results are going to be yeah um it, it's not scientific but it's scientific um i mean you've been to our place and yeah. others have been to our place and and the people while they all look very cool and unique they all look very similar physically yeah they they, they all look like they I don't know, like they operate farm equipment a lot yeah. by hand. They're, <laughs> and, just, they're, they're just fit. Ma- they're, they're massively fit. versatile. They're fit. They're, f- they're fit people that could jump over a wall and also dance probably. That's right. That's right. Correct. And, and that's, to, to me, that's, to me that's, the, that's the proof of the process. Yeah, yeah that, that's actually, it, they almost have like a dancer built to them, like, a, like, a, like an actual professional dancer, like how those guys are built. They have purposeful strength and conditioning aspect to them, but they also have strength. Gym, um, gymnast is another comparison yeah. that I like. Yeah. And it, it's, it's just there's nothing that doesn't need to be there, um, everything that does. And, again, that's why it transfers so well to, to fighting, yeah. combat sports, martial arts. Yeah, but, but, is, the, but the broken aspect of it. it, like it I, if, if, if I hadn't had to fix myself, the amount of diagnostics that I would be able to apply to others would be fractional. Was that the eye you gave yeah. up? <laughs> That's the eye I gave up. Is that, yeah. is that your sacrifice, your Odin sacrifice, basically? I, I mean, if I came into the gym and I had fallen off my bike for two days straight, but I still needed to train, how do I still do it? You know, so at that point, you, you figure, you, that you out, f- you figure out. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's the art of adaptability. Yeah. You know, how, how did you figure out what works and what doesn't? Failure. That's exactly <laughs> it. You know, ask me how I know is one because of my favorite things you've ever said to me. Know. You know, because of my own stupidity. And I'm here to share that with you so you don't have to be stupid like I am. Yeah. That, that's it. And, and, the, and the value of that, I think, is, is that we're able to take really anybody. And, and I think the only, the only lumped group that we get that I don't like is that we work with exclusively beginners because the 99%, a professional fighter, a professional golfer, 
baseball player, tremendous athlete, is so easy to sharpen up even further once you've built someone from nothing. Yeah. You get someone that comes in that really has no ownership over their physicality, no confidence, therefore their brain is terrified, and you turn them into like a freak of nature, supernatural animal. Yeah. You think you can't sharpen the edge of someone who's at the tip of the spear? Yeah. And I, and, I, and I say this a lot, and I really do mean it. I believe I can improve any athlete walking the earth. Yeah. And even the ones that are tremendously, tremendously high level, there's a hole in the boat somewhere, and I can find it with movement diagnostics. Yeah. I've seen you do it. It's like a, again, like a, one of those things that you witness, like you key in on small things. Your knees are not pointing where they should. Your toes are different. Your shoulder is this. You're not closing the circuit. You, basically, the inception of this is in California. Yeah, right? yeah. yeah. And, and put, starting to put the pieces together of, of the fact that even as I was injured, even as I had restrictions, the more accurately I moved, the more I could move. I could continue training if I moved correctly. We've seen that extrapolate all the way up into people in their 60s still doing tremendous feats. What I had seen in California is I, I loved my gym. I loved my instructors. They were starting to change course a little bit. One of them was going back into law enforcement. The other was getting much more into teaching and traveling. And, and really, he, he basically wanted to teach curated private groups um, because he, he loved he loved eliciting progress that he could see from people that truly cared. Yeah. You know, like yeah. he wasn't a group class instructor. I you know, when, when he would teach the group class, it was, it was wonderful. It was like a gift, but it was rare. And go ahead. When, when, when you, know, you know, I met you in Rochester. Yeah. Like, what was that process like, the, the going back? I, I decided in 2007, since BMX had changed completely and, and I had, I had, I was having a lot of trouble in my mind, and, and uh, I, I, I had reservations about leaving the gym because it, it, it was my place, you know? Um, but I had also already had the idea for, for what became Wolf Brigade. It had to be some hybridized strength and conditioning that wasn't CrossFit, but it wasn't some LARPy nerd fest of people running around and like doing nothing. Like yeah. I wanted to make strength and conditioning a martial art. Yeah. And in Southern California at the time. I couldn't have afforded it financially. Um, I don't think the demographic would have let it eat. And so when they started thinking about transitioning to, to other phases of their career, it was, it was a it's good your time. time. It yeah. was your time. Um, so so I, I, got that, I got that together in, in May, of, May of 2008. Um, moved back to Rochester, New York and started teaching classes Started teaching classes in a school playground. Yeah. That's that's that that was your that was the beginning of this church that you've constructed. Yeah, May eighteenth, two thousand eight. We we so, taught in the park. Yeah, so that's my Sermon on the Mount. We we did that till fall. Who um, who, who who showed up? Yeah, so it was funny because at least Rochester, I knew some people. 
you know, so it was, it was a small, weird group of people that were either artists or some people that were involved in music and, and a few people that had known, some cops and stuff that had known that I was coming back. They, they, follow, they were following you. They, my, they, my, my training background was interesting, you know, like these, yeah. we, we had, you know, we had a lieutenant in the Huntington Beach Police Department. We had high-level tacticians coming through the gym. We had professional kickboxers. We had, you know, I, when I would go down to CSW and, and he, I, believe me, I'm not trying to paint myself as a valuable training partner for Josh Barnett, but like I would get to, I would get to have my hands crushed to my face by people like that. I mean, so uh, when I moved back to Rochester, there was a small amount of interest. Yeah, yeah. You know, and it was, it, it wasn't it, much, but it was. You enough. mentioned Josh. Josh, you know? Josh Barnett was right there, like where you were sitting, and like. Uh, Again, you, your name keeps coming up in different conversations with different people from like Raul Martinez, who's one a fellow instructor and also a monster of a person. No neck dude. He's great though, I love him. Um, and, and Josh, like uh, I posted something about us and he posted uh, in the comment section, my two brothers working together. Man, it felt so good. Yeah, it's, a, it's a beautiful thing. Me too. You are back in Rochester people are coming to you now in this, you start off at this in the outside you know yeah. nobody's pay, nobody's paying yet you know where, 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 where are you getting your equipment you're just where are you getting your stuff <laughs> six, 6 p.m every night of the week rain or shine um i had a honda element at the time because i could put bikes in it upright and i had a couple of maces a couple of kettlebells a couple of medicine balls and I just dragged them out and we used the school playground, which had pull-up bars, essentially, places to jump, a soft, squishy floor to do jump arounds or whatever. And, um, and it was just, it was, the, it was the first kind of systematic strength and conditioning we yeah. applied. Um, it evolved quite a bit, but the skeleton looked the same. You yeah. know, we did a small strength piece, we did some conditioning stuff, and then we did whatever we wanted to do. Yeah. Goofed around or played or whatever, and, and so, you know, it, it, it also ended up very, very strangely continuing the kicked out of everywhere idea. We had a group of adults, some of which were relatively high level fire and law enforcement in the city at the time. And we got kicked out of the first playground we were at. <laughs> the, the principal of the school and these like, two what are you dopey doing? security guards came over and they were like, we need to ask you to go. And we're like, well, what do you mean? It's 6, it's 6 p.m. There's no kids here, you know, yeah. whatever. And they were like, well, you know, you can't be doing this here or whatever. And we're like, what are you playing on the playground? Yeah. You know, and I was like, I'm not charging these people money. Nobody's, yeah. nobody's paying for this. And ultimately we left. You're scary. Um, You're ultimately scary. We left. You were scary. Yeah. Because yeah. you were, you know, strong people here doing this. Same story we're hearing now. Do not help people. Yeah. Especially don't do it for free. No. No. And especially don't help all people. No, that's that don't harmful behavior, self-harm behavior. Yeah, dangerous organizations. Dangerous organizations. So you... We pivoted to one other school. Okay. Um, we went from number one school to number 52 school. We got kicked out of number 52 school. And then we got to fall of, of 2008, and we got a small space um, in a building called The Hungerford in Rochester, New York, which is where we had had a piece of the bike company years before... Uh, it's where we had Hell on Earth, our small clothing brand. Coming back. We had a little print shop there uh, that was ours. We had built that coalition press. We named it after the bike company. Beautiful. And um, we took a tiny room there for Wolf Brigade. Yeah. If, if, if people saw the first Wolf Brigade room, there's one photo of it. I'll share it on the internet soon. That'd be cool. And um, it was 500 square feet, puzzle mats, 
uh, Skittle-colored kettlebells that I got at a kettlebell certification <laughs> and a homemade pull-up bar. And we'd get five or six people a night. We had to make, we had to make it safe in there because it was a tiny space. And we just trained. Yeah. You know? And then a, uh, a little while later, we knocked the wall out. So our second space was essentially double our first space uh, right next door to it. It had a red carpet. The heater came on anytime it wanted to. Um, everything about it was totally just kind of wacky. Yeah. For a fitness facility, uh, it made no sense. There were, there was a computer company downstairs underneath it. Yeah. And we had one of the 450 pound tires that we have now. In there, in there. And so I wanted to teach people to turn it over and I wanted people to hit it with hammers. But we also knew that every time we turned it over, the computer company, these dudes would come up running upstairs like they'd been asleep for a month, you know, <laughs> dust on them and stuff. And just wondering what had happened. And we're like, you know, so we, we, we ended up with this like joking phrase. Every time we turned the tire, we'd say, sorry, nerds. Because <laughs> we, knew, we knew what catastrophe we had just caused underneath us. And, and um, the cool thing about that space in the Hungerford is that the first iteration, uh, we still have one person that trained in that first room with us. We still have four people that trained in that second room with us wow. from 2009. Wow. And they're, they're there. They're and still there. They'll, they'll never go. You know, um, when I went and visited you, coming back to the like the beginning of this conversation, um, I saw pictures of the gym that like ah we can do the class there, and I was like this fucking gym looks weird, because uh, like, I saw the pictures right, and it was like why are there complex equations on the, <laughs> on the, all over the walls. Why is there a skeleton right there? Which is, for me, it's like, cool. That looks like a cool-ass gym. But I was, like, trying to figure you guys out, I guess, because I don't, I, I don't know enough about you or your history, basically. But when I get there, I am, uh, it's not like a, it's not like, like a gym you would expect. Um, you walk in there, there is, like, a, balance of order and chaos that I've never seen at a gym before. When I say chaos, I mean there's art, there is uh, philosophy, there is, I, there is ideas, there's anger uh, expressed in, 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 in small pieces of, of, of writing and, and, and the rooms are laid out in such a way it's almost like a church of the body in a lot of ways, you know, when you kind of go there. But all of that went into the background when I met your, your top students. Like the quality of these people. Um, strong, if you didn't know them, you would be like, you know? But humble all hell, uh, capable, uh, no ego. That's the, that I think out of all of the things that were so shocking about that gym is that nobody was showing off, nobody knew more than anybody else, everybody was an empty cup. And it was so welcoming, I was like, fuck, why don't I have anything like this nearby where I live, I guess. But the quality of people 
that you have with you at this place and the space itself. Uh, can you tell me? Can just tell us about that. how how did you build this uh, this this church? I mean, man, we had to earn it. It was by piece. Uh, we uh, we moved from that location we just discussed to a standalone building that I always really thought was unique, and it came for rent. I grabbed it. It went well until it didn't go well. It was a little too small, um, but it was perfect for what we needed at the time. Um, there was some turmoil that happened there that I just really couldn't shake mentally. And uh, then what ended up happening that kicked us out was um, the fancy-ass owner that I would still like to find sometime and pat him on the back, um, ran the plumbing under the building but didn't complete it. Oh, no. So at a certain point, that came apparent. Yeah. And he used some loophole in the fact that he's smarter than me and has more money than most people um, as a clause in the is a clause in the lease, and we had to go. So relocating a gym of that size in Rochester, New York, was tough. Devastating. Um, a, a couple people had been hunting places for us. Um, you already had people, a community invested in you, so you, it wasn't just you. We, we we weren't going away. I just didn't want to take a step backwards, and. Um, Matt ended up finding this, this building nearby there that looked like it had some space available. And, and I called them for three months before they called me back. And at that point, we were running out the end of this cord. You know, the wick was burning. Yeah. I finally got him to call me back. Um, the guy was pretty cool. And, and uh, it was owned by a, a giant children's center that basically holds properties as like um, investment, investments or whatever. And uh, we got an opportunity to get this space when we got it, it looked like a horror movie scene, man. It had those like plastic drapes that they have in, in slaughterhouses and warehouses and stuff like that. Um, it was trashed. They sharpened it up a little bit, but then we sharpened it up the rest of the way. And, and that was the main room that, that you were in. Yeah. Um, we've rearranged it a bunch of times, but, but the space that you saw is the space that we started with and we've just continued to evolve it little bits at a time. Yeah. Um, very recently, we took a small piece of space next door to us, um, which was ill-timed because we can't afford it for many reasons, and then we got erased from the internet. So, um, anytime, of course, we've needed to expand, it's been a it's been, it's been a it's been a, it's been a struggle added challenge. Uh, but you, that that room, it, it's it's essentially what maybe my room as a kid would have looked like, what my ideal martial arts place would look like, and then. The fact that the people we teach and receive the best are those that have a desire for physicality, but also an, an intelligence about what they do, an intelligence about how they operate themselves. So the notes on the board is essentially just cliff notes for them. You know, if they're forgetting something or if, or if something's eluding them or something like that, look it, around. Keep, it keeps me from having to say yeah, it ad nauseum around. every day. Just look around. That's it. And, yeah. and I believe that that type of thing is it's not just it's not just aesthetic i mean that's what we teach convergence off we do an event every year called convergence um the board's a race and and then and then regrow every year with with information for convergence on it and, and that's awesome. what that's what we teach off of awesome you know it's like a, it's like a notebook that everybody gets to read you have empowered rebuilt uh, and brought back from injury many many people Many people, including myself, I'm like, I'll raise my hand. I'm one of them. Uh, that's why I'm pretty big about promoting you. 
the all that all that apparently is dirty bad words for people um you had your instagram account uh and your social media presence completely taken down recently yeah um this is uh this is phase two of that um the end of 2019 and, and moving into 2020 when when all that wacky stuff started um antifa decided that we were the worst thing in the world and um they got our maces removed from the distributor that had them at the time uh that bent the knee and folded over like a bunch of giant cowards yeah didn't even tell me they were going to stop selling our maces just stopped selling them yeah we had our customers had to tell us that we were no longer there um and this, wrote, is, this, I, this is peak era you know air narrative antifa all of the, everything all of the bullshit going on in that time and um Cancellation, cancel everybody. Basically, we 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 were we were you know we're very glad to help usher in cancel culture. You're welcome, everyone. <laughs> um, and uh, I, you know, I wrote emails to the owner of the company that that disregarded us after we had done such a great job for them. Yeah, um, cowards. Yeah, I'll, I'll I'll reissue the challenge I I issued to him at any point if anyone would like to hear it. Um, what I told actually what I told him because it's funny and someone might laugh is is that I will fight him under any martial arts rule set that the world has ever established anytime, anywhere. Because what he did is he almost put me out of business. Yeah. yeah. Because the reality is we don't carry tons and tons of members because we want quality over quantity. Of course. There's a barrier to entry to what we do and it's not high, but there is one. And so when we have something like the Mace, we have a small factory in Rochester that I've had to commit quite a bit of resource and time and energy to and, and they were used to doing a specific amount of stuff, and then all of a sudden, that stops. Yeah, it doesn't stop the amount of money I owe them for doing that stuff. Yeah. So what else happened with that is, um, we had a, a, a program called Wolf Brigade Cubs in the public schools in Rochester. Um, those same fussy losers in their parents' basements decided to do phone blitzes on the school to make it seem like it was some giant organization trying to deplatform us for being evil. And the school bent the knee and, and removed the Cubs program. This, this nonsense that went on for all that time just took a lot from a lot of people. I mean, the narrative aspect of it, we, we can, we, the attempts of canceling people, I mean, it's bullshit. It's complete and utter bullshit. I've never been in a gym as welcoming as diverse as yours. And, it, and, it's, and it's engineered and, that way. And, and something that people overlook because they don't know anything about it is the cultures that I grew up in do not have one moment of tolerance for any of that bullshit. Yeah, you, it's, if people would, could just fucking but go. There's, there's no objectivity to it. I understand. You know? And, and it's, 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 it's tough. And, and the reason that it gets me, and I'm, I'm not proud that it gets me, but it gets me, is that... Is that <laughs> I have had my hands on more Nazis or white supremacists or whatever they want to call them. It's, a, it's all a buzzword um, than they have ever seen in their lives. I've, I've pulled more people out of danger. I've had more diplomatic conversations that kept rooms safe. I've done more things to make sure that that, that type of stuff is not present. You know, in order for Rochester to be safe, we had to make sure that that was not there. We did it. Yeah. You think that was kind and peaceful? 
So a lot of times the people that tend to tow those narratives are ones that would never actually put the gloves on and get to work. These are faceless cowards that are hiding behind a fucking keyboard and whoever the fuck they are out there, fuck you. But uh, false bullshit. I mean, I got my account taken down at 400,000 people, you know, and it's and it was because I posted some videos of the lockdown in China. Right? So, you hmm. know. You put two and two together and all of a sudden it makes four. I don't know. Like for me, that was. And then, you know, you're, you're coming down here, planning this uh, project we have together. I don't like keeping the good news to myself, you know? Yeah. When I, um, when I went through what I went through myself and this process that I'm about to really go head first into because I'm, I'm doing this. This this, uh, this program, and I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna get better. Your 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 Instagram and everything, your social media basically got taken down, gone. Um, multiple reports of self harm. You know, uh, I don't see anything on your on your on your social media except opinions that are important, empowering ideas, reflection people getting better, people doing superhuman shit that in the past couldn't yeah. fucking walk. People can't, they couldn't bend their knees and couldn't bend down like myself. Um, and somehow all of that shit is cancelable or an offense. We were trying to do a live conversation <laughs> and just because I shared a video of yours where somebody's swinging around a kettlebell on fire which is, an, it's, 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 uh, it's an act of strength and also it's a cool thing. I mean, you can compare it to seeing a Hawaiian dancer dancing around with two sticks with flames. I, probably that's not going to be said that that's a dangerous activity, yeah. but somehow we can't do live videos for some reason. That's enough of an offense. Um, well, we got, we got, we got dangerous uh, we got violence and dangerous organizations is what they said. And the interesting thing about it is we've asked some people that know a lot more than us and, and very seldom do they see a platform removed without any warnings. Yeah. We've never gotten a warning. Um, no course for appeal. And it's social media. But the thing is, and it's similar with you, is we use it as real-time connection with people around the world. Not everybody in the world needs everybody's phone number. Yeah. But the connection is very, very real. And I've, I've pined over some of the open-ended conversations I had in there when we lost that thing. And it still exists. You know, maybe someone will hear this and turn it back on, but I doubt it. But the other thing that that page was is it was the largest free, 100% accurate, bullshit-free training manual yeah, yes, ever. Yes, yes. There, it, were, there were hundreds and hundreds of instructionals, narrations from Convergence. As you said, demonstrations of not only people from our gym that we're proud of, but things in strength and conditioning that had never previously happened. Yeah. Unprecedented feats that we've engineered by changing how movements work, changing how hand positions are, building these impervious types of athletes. All that was demonstrated on there. And then the most important thing to me is my long form writing is elsewhere. There's books out and things like that, but, but the short form writing- It's gone. I prioritized for Instagram. Yeah. Um, which was a mistake, yeah. but uh, I still have all of it. None, none of it's gone. I, I own it. It's mine. But yeah. it was there for people. And the thing that I liked the most, 
more than people complimenting a lift or any, anything like that was, was the fact that every single week people would be like, I saved this post and I refer to it weekly when X, Y, Z. Yeah. You know, yeah. like that, that makes, that makes something like social media feel way more real than just a tiny robot yeah. in your hands yeah. feeding you information. And in no way, shape or form were you, like, did I seem anything you posted was like a commercial to sell anything. It was all in a lot of ways altruistic. And a lot of ways I wanted to like, Hey dude, sell something, you know, well, <laughs> but, it, but it was, it was, it was not that. In this interesting way, I loved how we did it. We, we had this almost like a handshake agreement with our audience with our wonderful audience is that we would give away all this stuff and showcase what we wanted to showcase and, and try and help them narrate through it. And, and, um, and then when we put something up for sale, they would bite on it, Yeah, you know, because they cared about of us. Course. And of then course. what I would do too is, is, and I, so I've pivoted on this and because of this and other things, there's going to be a consultation page up next week. Amazing. So finally, People have asked, and I appreciate that a lot. And now we're going to monetize it because it's important. Yeah, um, I'll be available for that. Yeah, um, the, the and for people that you know, you can. I, I if I if if you had said, hey, that interaction we had three years ago is going to cost you five hundred dollars, and I have the results that I have right now. I'll pay you five hundred dollars for that, that. Those thirty minutes you gave me, and and I, and I don't I don't do that. You know, like what what I used to do on Instagram was is people would have a question, and I would say send me a send me a one minute video, and I'll send you back a one minute answer. <laughs> yeah, and we would fix it. I understand. Know? I understand, but like I'm trying to give people like, hey, <laughs> Greg's never gonna ask for shit, but I'm here to tell you how valuable how valuable it is to find somebody that not only knows this. But it's done it on himself, and he can share that with you virtually. That is powerful. I mean, and the assessments and adjustments on Instagram and on those on those types of things. People would send us a short video of something they knew that was wrong, but they didn't know why, and I would send back a short explanation, and they and they would fix it. It's re yeah. it really it, it, when your when your eye has been developed to a point where you know what you're looking at, that's relatively easy. Those were valuable to me. That that was like a focus group different than my in-person focus group. Yeah. But the reason I could do it is because we had this handshake agreement. Yeah. You know, we would give stuff away, but then when we put something up, it would it would sell. Yeah. So if they're going to take that from us, then we just have to pivot, and, and uh, we're not going anywhere. N you know? <laughs> a, a lot of people, when I was canceled, basically when my whole social media went down, the screamed at me oh, go on you know go on this conservative <laughs> site go on go over there this alternative social media and i was like fuck no i'm gonna stay <laughs> yeah the disruptive aspect of staying you know um enduring um that cancellation attempt on me actually made us grow because the people that followed us for the right reasons or the people that were invested in us, I, I, I have a hard time doing commercials for ourselves, but the people that were invested in us found us again. Immediately. And immediately. We were, immediately. I was, we, were, we left at 400,000, we're at 300,000 again. So we're running towards 400 again. I write about my issues. I write openly about my struggles. People were witnessed me live going from drinking, binge drinking on live videos on Instagram during the COVID shutdown 
to me writing essays on how I managed to pull myself out of that some of that shit and how I've changed in course and direction. Um, basically, what you've been doing, um, and somehow that stage that's, that has gotten me more reports and, and than some of the cartel videos that I used to post. Yeah. Uh, that I that I can't anymore on on social media. There, there's a what, there's a what, power what? to that though that they can't they can't control it and so that that it terrifies people. You know, I mean, you, you speak with this clarity and this level of experience that there's no way that someone who's intimidated by the real world is going to feel comfortable with that. We talked about like we did a, this live video and we we're talking about the fact that well, there's. Some sort of commonality, I guess, with all all the people that I respect, they're all shadow banned. You know, there's a, somebody somebody posted that quote. Uh, all my idols are shadow banned. You know, so now I uh, now I that's like a no. Oh, you're shadow banned. That means that you have something important to say. That's kind of become yeah. a weird badge of like, oh, why are they covering this? Like, what 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 is being hidden? I guess. And a, and a world a world that celebrates the censors is is headed in a real troublesome direction. Yeah, it's funny that the punk rock kids now, or the people that call themselves punks, are the ones reporting. I'll I'll tell you what, man. Snitching. If 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 I had a if I had a point of contention with the last three years, it's watching nearly everyone in counterculture bend the knee, the knee wear the mask immediately. Wear the mask. And if, if people had if people had health reasons or they were just going through some dissonance and, and feeling really conflicted, because listen, one thing I've thought about a lot is <laughs> we've had questionable views of authority our entire lives. Yeah. Some people had not ever needed to question authority until 2020. Imagine if your first introduction to questioning authority was March of 2020. <laughs> I get it. I get it. It would short circuit you. Yeah. But, but, but people who are in counterculture, at least conceivably, should have been thinking about that long before. It's, it's funny how cons being almost in a, I mean, I don't, I don't like to call myself conservative specifically, but that is counterculture. Being questioning of authority is counterculture. But by that's by not, very nature. But that's not, that, that's not what it's, that it's not what it is now in the youth because they, whoever, did a job on them, did a pretty good job on them, I guess. Well, I kept thinking about it is that now they're rebelling against the rebels. It's like they're taking the people that have decided to keep their own free minds and do what they can amidst all of this chaos and everything like that and target them. Reverse Uno. Yeah, it's exactly, yeah that's exactly right. That's not a game I want to play, man. It's, yeah. it's, 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 well, it's, even though we don't want to play it, we're, we're, we are actually. Yeah, I guess we have to. Because we're betting on, we're betting on permanence. And I think on, on my end, I know that whatever this project is that I'm on, you know, this, this documenting conversations with people like you, um, people, Josh, Raul, all of these warriors of their, in their own right, uh, all these people that have fixed themselves, went through war of both personal and external and have come back to us with lessons, you know. I know that that is bigger than I am. And I know people watch these and take a lot from them. And I get, I get some of them. I have to read some of the, I do read, read some of the DMs every now and then. And I usually have to be alone. I usually lock myself in the bathroom when I do it because I bawl my eyes out with some of them. Yeah, man. Um, 
the fact that the fact that those sat there in that Instagram and some people sent them and I didn't get to see them or that I hadn't yet responded or something like that. I mean, I'm not going to whine about it, but like it's, that's the heavy stuff. That's the stuff where you feel like the world tricked you. Yeah. You know, here, build build this here, build yeah. this here, develop this community. But oh, don't do anything different than we want you to, or we're gonna pull it right out from under you. When God favors you, so does the devil. And I think, you know, some of these trials and tribulations, cancellation attempts, like with me, I came back stronger. I think you're going to come back way stronger from this bullshit. Um, I think a lot of us have been doing this shit solo, right? And one big, very selfish thing I've been doing on my own journey is that I've been finding the others. Um, sitting here with Josh and learning about how he encountered violence, you know, when he was a kid and how that turned into a life. Um, Raul going to war and coming back, you know. Uh, Micah Fink uh, not wanting to talk about his exploits as a seal. He wanted to talk about his exploits as a healer and using horses to heal people. Um, me not being able to bend and over to touch my knees uh, and having a, a six-year-old at that time running around me wanting to play and I just couldn't play with her on the ground. And you giving me the gift of mobility, you know. Finding these people out there and not being selfish with them and sharing them with, you know. I, I know that we're not alone, you know, because I see them talk to me in the comments. I, last night, I posted this uh, check-in, you know, this video game check-in. Like, hey, check-in. And, and the comments are just full. Yeah. Yeah, people, people, people just want to be asked, hey, of course how are, are you? Um, I answered, I was th almost three in the morning, I couldn't sleep. It's like, honestly, like, hey, Ed, why, why can't you sleep? I'm about to talk to Greg on the podcast, and I'm nervous about it. Like, why? Because I want to do the best I can for him, because he did the best for me. And um, we're not alone in this shit. We've already found each other. There's a bunch of us out there. It's a bunch of weirdos. For some reason, we gravitate towards the same thing. Um, and I think it's probably because we've, we've experienced loss and death and destruction and reconstruction. And, and uh, we've been through the shamanic experience. You know, the shaman is somebody that goes into the underworld and doesn't stay there, comes back with lessons. The half dead, you know, Lazarus coming back from the dead, you know. I talked to you yesterday about Lazarus. Uh, St. Lazarus was brought back to life by Jesus days after his death to prove his power. And Lazarus didn't have a choice. He came back fucked up. <laughs> Dog, dogs licking him and stuff. Yeah. Um, but he made the best of it, you know? He made the best of it, you know? Um, he walked the earth in that way. In a lot of ways, I think all of us have some of that in us. You know, we, we, It wasn't our choice to come back or to stay. And broken as we are, we still walk on. And I think that is dangerous to some people to talk about. Um, Consonance is dangerous. We didn't change a damn thing during that whole pandemic. 
and we closed for three days. I drove the county. I wanted to see what other good quality people were doing. And they were, they were doing what they were doing all the time. You're yeah. selling apples, you're selling apples. Yeah. You know, you're running a hardware store, you're running a hardware store. Maybe the drapes are pulled, but you're running a hardware store. Yeah. We opened, we never closed again. We ran every single day. It put me in the ground. You know, what we do is hard enough anyway without people calling us from the front, calling the cops on us from driving by, you know, everyone being stressed out all the time. Yeah. You know, having to clean things twice because everyone's afraid of their own shadow. Yeah. But we did it, consonant. And, and, and it's the same, you know, yeah. you've, you've ebbed and flowed in a personal way, but like you have never deviated from wanting to help people. Yeah. Let's, you know, I yeah. mean, from the, from the first moment I saw you on the internet, I, I was, I was like, it's the way. I was just fascinated. It's the way arming people like you have, I arm people in my own way. Uh, but also being brutally honest and open with our process so people can see and learn and I think that is, that is the way. Um, Greg, this was an amazing conversation. Uh, and I want one Thank that you, I, one I think that I looked forward to uh, since I started this, I'm like, what am I gonna have on here? And one of the first names that came up was you. Um, if only for the fact that I hate keeping stuff to myself and I just wanted to share you with all these, these, these people watching. Um, Thank you for not only showing up for me, uh, but also for giving me that gift of mobility. You know, whatever bullshit is out there, um, some of the shit that has been attempted on both of us as cancellation attempts and all this horrible crap. All of it is just a testament that we're doing something. In the end, I think that's, yeah, there's a reason why all, all the people I respect are shadow man. This is a... Uh... This is so important to me. Thank you. Thank you.